Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hi, everyone. This is Shireen, and you're listening to It Can Happen Here. It could. I always mess up the name of this podcast, and it's really embarrassing because I work on it. It could happen here. Um, not the same words to me in my head, though. Anyway, we're joined today by a guest that I previously had on the podcast that I co-host, Ethnically Ambiguous, and she has a podcast coming out that is super important, and I'm excited to talk about what it's about itself. Joining me today are Garrison and Chris, and our guest, uh, Neha Aziz. Hi. Hello. Neha, hello. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to the show. So you're, you have a new podcast called Partition. Explain what that's about. Yes. So Partition tells the story of the separation of India and the formation of Pakistan that took place in 1947. 
on Monday, well, Sunday, Monday, because it happened at midnight, celebrated its 75th anniversary this year. Um, So it's quite a large event that most people don't really know about. I myself didn't really know uh, the specific. I first went back to Pakistan, uh, where I was born in Karachi. Um, But basically, Britain was like, hey, we're out of money. We can't control India anymore. We're going to leave. And in that process, they were going to transfer the power uh, to India and they were going to they were going to have independence. And then all these other politicians kind of came in the picture and wanted their own personal agendas. And uh, Pakistan dominion, while India would be the Hindu Sikh dominion. And basically within this process, it was such a rushed job that you know, 14 million people were uprooted, one to two million people died. You know, um, the boundary line actually a few days after independence happened. So no one knew like what, where they were in what country. Um, so it was just like a lot of confusion, a lot of violence, a lot of just a lot of mess that happened. And a lot of the survivors are quite old now. My grandfather's a survivor. He's four, He was 14 when it happened, so he's 89 now. And so the only way we can really get these stories are through oral histories. And I never really learned about it in school. And because my parents, again, like I said, I didn't really know about it for a long time. So if I don't know about it, um, and this is like my history and my family, um, I'm sure there are many other people who don't know about it. Well, I definitely was very uninformed before you came on to uh, the other podcast, Ethnically Ambiguous. Yeah, because it sounds like I'm plugging it, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> but also go listen to it. I'm going to play it. Thanks. I appreciate that. But, but no, I do think it's really important because it's absurd the huge or like kept out of mm-hmm. what we were taught in history class, if you can even call it that. Mm-hmm. Um but, but yeah, I think it's really important to know about this huge thing that happened in our recent history that created these two. Um, can you tell us what the process was making this podcast for you and like what research you did and what like just the steps leading up to it? Yeah, so I originally wanted to make this um, story into a limited narrative series, <laughs> but I didn't really know how that would happen. Um, and I could age in or anything like that, but it was just a project I wanted to work on. But it's such a vast event. I was like, I don't know like where I would even start. Um, and then a couple of months later, I saw um, that iHeartRadio was creating a program called Next Up. And that's when the idea for the podcast came along. And I was like, you know, podcasts are a really good way for people to digest information. Um, it's a lot more accessible, I think, than other forms of media. It doesn't cost any money. Uh, it in a number of ways. You can listen to it in a number of ways. Um, so I thought that might be a good place to start. And I ended up getting accepted into the program. And it's, it's still like a lot of work and it's a lot of just a lot of draining work um because you have all these like horrible facts written in like one google doc (laughs) that you're saying to people because i outline them and then i write a script um because it's mostly a lot of my narration with but the first thing i did is 
Um, I talked to family. I talked to my grandpa. I talked to my great aunt, who was actually born the day of independence. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so. Uh, and you said Sunday, remember. Monday, but just in case the date is not. You meant yeah, the so 14th August, and 15th. Okay. 15th. So yeah. this year, it happened to be a Sunday and a Monday. And, you know, so I asked her what stories people told her. I asked my mom. Uh, we went to an exhibit in Pakistan. That's kind of what spurred everything for Partition for me. And sh- we talked about there I had like my dad do some voiceover for my grandpa because the our connection wasn't the best he's in Pakistan we recorded it via whatsapp on a pod track recorder and it's it was like a it was it's very loud over there there's you know constantly it was just like a it was a situation um but I just started reading books and then I started talking to a lot of people and I ended up talking to an author named Nisad Hajari whose book I referenced quite a bit in the second episode uh which drops 22 and you know the first thing he told me was you can't cover everything so once you understand that that's going to be the case and it's going to be a lot easier and it's true, like you can't cover everything. And I kind of struggled with the narrative I wanted to tell because so many of the stories out there are very biased. There's a lot of, you know, like the great men in history stories, which I don't care about. And I just wanted to tell the facts, but I quickly discovered that's really hard. My history. This is my story. This is something that impacts my family for um, future generations and I, my identity, uh, without a doubt. So I was like, let me kind of do it with the lens of discovery. Um, and I wanted to tell the stories that people don't really hear about. So I didn't want to talk about like meetings that happened in libraries and whatever between like all these politicians i literally don't care about that but about um the way women were treated it is thought that seventy thousand to a hundred thousand women were raped abducted murdered i wanted to talk about i wanted to talk to artists and creatives who had a, kind of like a reckoning with the and then use their work to teach people about it so an artist who reframes the narrative with her pieces and talks about the actual people it affected, a filmmaker, oral historians, uh, survivors um, that I wanted to tell. I didn't want it to be um, something you would get like on the History Channel, which is totally fine. That's great. There's an audience for that. But that just isn't something that I wanted to do. You're not doing a whole bunch of... No. <laughs> I did watch an episode of Doctor Who that talks about partition, and I think there were like aliens or something in there. Fasc- so there fascinating. Is, <laughs> so there is something thrown in there about uh, some sci fi stuff, though. They <laughs> yeah, to see how Doctor Who handles partition. Yeah, I mean, it was actually done really well. Oh, really? It was written by a, yeah, it was written by a South Asian person. That's oh, great. Why. Oh, phew. And so that was like the first uh, thing that I saw in my research that really case like the emotion and and the things that people went through and i didn't see any british people besides like the people that originally came on the mission or whatever so that was nice um but yeah like there there was a sci-fi element i can't tell you what what that side <laughs> it was actually something that um that people told me about when i mentioned partition they're like oh there's this episode of doctor who so i've only seen that that one episode but it i think it in the in my research, it was the first thing where I was like, 
this actually tells a perspective from the people of South Asia. That's good to know. It was written by a South Asian person. At first, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not even going to touch that. Um, yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, uh, up up yeah. next, Stephen Moffat writes about apartheid. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, not including, like including some things, but not other things. What, what, like, uh, how did you decide what to include and what not to include? Yeah. So... No way you can say like the actual history is maybe the least important part, I think, of the podcast. Like I talk about like events, like there's something called Direct Action Day that happened about a year before the boundary line was announced. Uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the future founder of Pakistan, kind of called on Muslims to be to to kind of uh, have demonstrations. But it was kind of unclear what exactly that meant and looks massive looting carnage took place and how that was like a big catalyst for partition but I didn't want to like get into like this treaty and this event and like this meeting and and whatever because that information is out there if people want to know mentioned that's not really the aspects um that I took particular interest in I wanted to talk about women and survivors and just you know, I felt I found it to be very common people who are my age, and I just turned, through, um, I guess, millennials, you could say, um, their parents and family don't talk to them about it. So it's been really interesting to talk to people who are my age, who are older than me, who are younger than me, have very similar experiences, and how they found out about this information. Um, so those are the kind of things I wanted to focus on, because, you know, a lot of our stories uh, find minority communities um, that are out there in like mainstream media are rarely told from our perspectives. And so I wanted, I wanted this story to come from me and from other people who um, have just different experiences with partition, whether they live through it, whether they're an oral historian, they write a fictional novel about it to cope with their trauma, which I interviewed a woman who did do that. She was four years old when it happened, and she disassociated herself a lot with partition until she wrote about until she wrote about it in this uh, fictionalized novel. Um, and I wanted to talk about what forms of media were also out there, which is why I watched that Doctor Who episode. I also watched Gandhi, three hours of my life. I'm never going to get back. Um, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> so not great. Um, you know, I love Richard Attenborough. Like, Jurassic Park is great, but it, this wasn't it. Um, so I wanted to... I wanted to point people in a direction where if you actually wanted to dig deeper into this information, like here's where you should go. Like don't the, um, like don't watch. I mean, I love the crown, but I mean, like, let's be real. Like, you know, like they mentioned, uh, I think India once in the pilot episode um, where, and it took place about three months after partition happened. Philip is getting married to queen Elizabeth. And um, what's his name? Winston Churchill is walking and he sees Lord Mountbatten, who is tasked with the separation of India, who is also Prince Philip's uncle. And Churchill goes, oh, that's the man who gave India away. And I'm like, 
that's not really what happened, but okay. And that's the only thing that they say. Um, But I do love period dramas and I do love corgis, which is one of the main reasons I watch The Crown. Um, But yeah, so... Wait, wait, sorry. Can I ask... Mom Patton's the guy who got whacked by the IRA in the 70s, right? Yes. The same guy. Jesus. Yes. Yeah. I actually didn't know that until I watched The Crown. (laughs) So, uh, you know, um, because again, that was into him and his history because i don't care (laughs) i ended up seeing it in the crowd um yeah so i just i really wanted to focus on south asians and like our story and working through how trauma is and kind of reclaiming our narrative with um just kind of the truth and you know something that popped up when I was creating, kind of getting deeper into the podcast was Miss Marvel. I knew it was going to follow a most great, but I didn't know that they would talk about partition and how that was like a major plot point. And so people are starting to learn about the history because of that show, which is amazing. Um, so if I can kind of add on to that and expand um, people's education, something else I also wanted to do was I want people to have empathy and sympathy for immigrants and refugees, especially ones that don't look like them um, because we come in all colors and sizes. And, you know, I think their response to uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian refugees in the UK was great, but I don't really think that same courtesy was extended to refugees from Syria. And I think that's really important because I'm an immigrant. It took quite a long time for me to become a citizen. Uh, so, um, and it's very hard and it's something that people don't know about. And so I just kind of want, I want people to care about things that don't directly affect them, uh, which I think is a very much like an American rooted thing. So I, I really, I mean, I don't think my podcast is going to change that, but if I can, but if people can like look outside themselves um with this i think that would be really great yeah i was wondering what, what do you actually think about the way that uh miss marvel like did like talked about partition because i saw a lot of i don't know i, I saw a lot of conflicting sort of <laughs> arguments yeah so i liked it um but i'm also I think when already and you see something that has affected you and your family or has oppressed you, you expect this art form to talk about every single thing, you know, burden um, that we bear as creative artists of color, that if we don't talk about every single thing that's oppressed a community, then it's not worth our time is kind of like the the mantra that we have. Um, and for me, I'm like, this show is six episodes. But like, you know, you need to yeah. understand that that is not something they that they can encapsulate in there while talking about all these other things. So I think it does a really good job capturing emotion. Um, I feel a lot of times you get the partition story from people um, who are currently in India. So it was nice to see people from Pakistan, um, like, and they're from Karachi, just like I am. And I found it, you know, like every episode just made me just cry <laughs> more. I'm also very sensitive. And so I would just, um, felt it. you know, there was a, there was a particular scene where Kamala is talking to her, her nani, which means grandmother. And her grandmother is like, my passport says Pakistan, but my roots are in India. 
And I really felt that because I was, my parents were born in Pakistan, but all other generations were born in India. And that is a place because of how tense the borders are between these countries, I will not get to visit for the foreseeable future. If you are born in Pakistan, you are not allowed to go to India, you are not allowed to go to Pakistan. And it's just crazy because I'm like, well, that's where I came from, in a sense, you know. Um, so for me, just because like I said, I am a sensitive person, like the emotion, you know, the people going on trains that, you know, that is something that I talk about a lot in my podcast, a lot of people experienced or read about. Um, a lot of people were hoping to get on trains. And when they tried, those trains came were filled with dead bodies and not people who are alive. And so I think it did a good job capturing the emotion. But it's like you there's just no way you can capture the complexity of that event with that. Even with my podcast, it's 10 episodes. And like Nisid you just can't cover everything. So you have to pick and choose what you want. And also, like, it's as an artist, like, for me, for me, specifically, it's like, I want to give you like the crumbs of something. And then I want you to look into it more, right? Like, I shouldn't have to force feed you information, I should keep you intrigued enough for you to want to look at this information on your own, you know. So like, that's how I how I see it, but I am in a little bit of a different position because film and, and TV, like I program several film festivals and things like that. So I'm also looking through that with that kind of eye. Um, but like, I can understand people are like, oh, I wish they talked about this. I wish they talked about this. But, you know, you, you know, I'm just like, well, it's six episodes. They have to do all this exposition. They have to do this. That's just impossible. But people aren't thinking that way. But I think it really captured the emotion and the trauma of that event and how how um, sad it is. Um, because it is sad to be like, I'll never get to see where my great-grandparents lived or my grandparents because they were children, you know, at least until they decide that's not the case anymore. Um, but yeah, I can understand people's, but I think for me personally, I thought it did a really good job. And actually, uh, the woman who created the exhibit that I saw in Pakistan that really spearheaded this whole thing for me actually directed episodes four and five of Miss Marvel, so which is really cool. There, that was another thing I guess I sort of wanted to ask about was like, what was the process of doing this like emotionally? I know I did a. I wound up doing somewhat similar things for a couple of episodes about two and like talking to my family about what it was like in China was just like, and like just doing the sort of archival research was just like brutal. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I want to know like what that was like for you and what that was like for like your family having to talk about it. And yeah. yeah. It was really draining because you're just reading so many awful things. Like I read a number of different books and, you know, talking to all these people. And I think for my grandfather, I think like, I don't, I don't, he's not a very emotional person and physically there with him when he was talking to me. And I think it's like something that's for sure, like in the past for him. And he was fortunate in the way that he came from an area that did have violence, but it wasn't to the extent that you, uh, of other people's account. Um, and but talking to survivors was really hard. I actually went to San Francisco to talk to someone specifically because uh, they're very hard of hearing. And so doing it virtually would have been very impossible. And 
hard because he was saying all these things and then he would tear up. And it's like, where do you just listen to this person? And then where do you comfort them is really hard because I don't want to interrupt, but I don't want them to be like, I don't care about what you're saying. Like it's affecting. Um, and that person spoke to me uh, for two and a half hours and I have wow. yet to really listen to his audio. I've just like listened to bits and pieces just for like clarity purposes. Um, so that's going to be rough when that happens and it's going to come up soon. <laughs> um, it was just really draining. And it's just like, like highlighting. It's like, you know, when you're reading, I've read all these books and then you're highlighting things, but it's like, you're going to highlight the whole book because it's just, there's just so many crazy things. And yeah, it's just really sad. It's really draining. Like I'd mentioned writing this and I'm like, here's just like 20 minutes of terror <laughs> and like an eight page Google doc that you have to say. Um, and that also brings up another point where even though this podcast is sad and it's not particular in ways, I did want to be myself. And so I try to add a little bit of levity in there. Um, like there was an artist who um, that I mentioned her work. Her name is Prithika Chaudhary. She had these really beautiful installations um, of like female body parts, but they ended up getting ruined in transportation. And so she digitized them and is and made NFTs. And so me trying to explain what an NFT is is just the most ridiculous thing in the world. So I was like, I'm not going to talk about it. But it's like levity in there that we're talking about NFTs in this podcast, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it's still like a really draining process because I say this a lot and people I've interviewed say this, that partition isn't something that's in the past. It's something been breathing. And, you know, Pritika said it in a really succinct way where she's like, it lives in families and it really does. So like every day I feel like I just kind of, it's hard for me not to get bogged down with all this information. I am a sensitive person, so I'll, I tend to hold things and carry things with me. Um, but yeah, it's been a really rough process. But I think what kind of makes it a little easier is like, well, these people's stories are getting out there. Um, people who are going to learn about it now, and maybe that inspires them to learn about other events that they didn't learn in school. Like all of my education was done in Texas, and that can be another podcast within itself because our education is something to <laughs> say the least um so that's kind of the way i try to look at it like it's really rough and then i also <laughs> um i love reading and everything so i'm just like well i'm gonna read this like thirsty rom-com to get me away from like the horribleness of the work i'm doing every day definitely a little bit of balance too i do think to hear you say that you're I'm very sensitive as well and how you hold stuff in I do think as people of color our families especially like immigrant families or people that have been through trauma that's that's why that's why I know about this because mm -hmm. this intergenerational trauma is something that they've kept and barely talked about if at all mm -hmm. um so I'm really glad that like you went to San Francisco and that person was able to like release all of this and that they were holding probably for their whole life. So, yeah. so, so yeah, I do. I, I think um, there are many reasons why your podcast is important, but I think even the chance that someone can like that, uh, not trauma sounds a little bit more dramatic than I wanted to, but like the feelings behind what that means mm -hmm. and yeah. th their family history, or even if you're not 
South Asian. It's important to know, again, something that doesn't affect you. Yeah. Whole world, really. Yeah, it's just like understanding your history and like where you come from. She's Chinese. And she texted me. She was just like, now I kind of want to look into like my history. And I'm like, that's great. Like, that's what I, you know, I, I wanted. If I wanted any kind of like actionable thing to happen, it's like that exact thing. History, looking into other people's histories. Yeah. Totally. Wow. Um, I, for we confirmed you as a guest that you're good at talking and this confirmed that thank you so much you were a oh great guest. i babble a lot so i was like i'm <laughs> no, really sorry the, <laughs> have to in edit. my opinion no you're the perfect <laughs> podcast guest like just <laughs> period um but i really i appreciate the both effort and like emotional energy that goes into making a show like this because I can kind of relate when I talk about the Middle East stuff. Like, it's really, yeah. really hard. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate your time. And I'm to learn more about the partition and what that means. Um, can you tell the audience where they can find you? And uh, the podcast, obviously, is everywhere you can find it. But let's. I'm going to hand it over to you. Here you go. Um, so partition podcast. On August 15th, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts, um, especially the iHeartRadio app. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, Instagram at Nehaziz, Twitter at Nehaziz13. And you can find Partition on Twitter at 1947 Partition Podcast on Instagram. Nice. Um, on EA, you mentioned a upcoming project you want to do that's also about like a similar mm -hmm. topic. Yeah what that is yes yeah. um, something that I really wanted to do and this is another thing that we were kind of talking about of like people not talking about like everything like encompass encompassing everything in like one uh story so um something very happened in 1971 when East Pakistan became Bangladesh um and a lot of my mom's families from there my grandma um, and a lot of her family currently live there. And it's, a, again, very similar to Partition, a lot of violence. A lot of, um, and that story, to me, um, deserves its own time and respect. And I remember when I first like talked about Partition, they're like, oh, are you going to talk about this? And I'm like, I'm going to mention it. But it is too just kind of throw into what I'm doing because it deserves way more than that. So that is another story that I want to tell. And it actually celebrated its 50th anniversary last year in 2021. Um, and from my understanding, it's no memorials in either India or Pakistan that commemorates, not commemorates, but showcases like how partition was like, we don't, you know, there isn't like a, like here are all the people who died or here's this, or here's like this statue of a bird or um, <laughs> that um that you know that people yeah. there's no like communal place of grief and it is my understanding that bangladesh really does have these things i believe there's a liberation museum and statues and there is a partition museum in 2017 but it is not a government sanctioned thing it's privately owned and again it with it being in india um there there's also a lot of barriers like it, it's not a place i can visit um and so um, that is something I'm actually trying to go to Bangladesh um, this year. And it's 
been a little bit difficult, I think, uh, trying to obtain her visa. But I hope she gets to go soon. I hope I get to go with her. But um, yeah, that's other stories that I want to tell because I feel like it's starting to kind of, people are starting to understand that, but I feel like 1971 is just not there mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. Um, it's, I think, something that people seem to just forget about. And it's just crazy to think, I'm like, it's that's not that long. For- no. Oh, it's like 75 no. years, it's like 50 years. <laughs> that's not a long time. Yeah, it's really um, so it's just like really insane when you think about it that way and um especially when you think of how ancient these Mm -hmm. and just how new these places are um so yeah that's something i would definitely love to tell um i would love for my next project to be on that um but that decision is not up to me (laughs) so hopefully um hopefully it'll work out yeah i really hope so too um uh i do really appreciate and I'm sure everyone else does too the fact that you're talking about things that are just glossed over or not even mentioned usually mm-hmm. I hate that like it's usually our job to educate people but in the meantime you're doing a fantastic job and I can't wait to see the other projects you do but obviously mm-hmm. listen to partition everybody first <laughs> um yeah that's the show Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hello, this is It Could Happen Here, and today it's me, James, and I'm joined by San Diego, and we are talking about San Diego's lying mayor and how he likes to punch down on poor people even though he promised he wouldn't. Uh, so joining me today, I'm going to ask you guys to all introduce yourselves, explain a little bit about the background you have in the area, and then we'll get into it because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, so. Mandy, would you like to go first? Uh, hi, I'm Mandy. I, um, I'm a homeless advocate. I mostly do um, on-the-ground work with mutual aid. And then I advocate for them as much as I can um, with city municipalities um, and just organize that way. Great. And Colleen, you can go next if that's okay. Yeah, my name's Colleen Cusack. I'm a criminal defense attorney and I uh, represent... Uh, approximately 50 homeless persons pro bono right now uh, who are cited with the crimes of survival, such as encroachment and overnight. So I can challenge laws and have them declared unconstitutional. McConnell, I'm an advocate for people who are living unsheltered or homeless. And I've been working on this for about 13 years. First part, working within the system uh, as a philanthropist, advocate, volunteer, uh, former vice chair of the regional task force on the homeless. I'm a founding, was a founding member of a local philanthropy group called Funders Together to End Homelessness San Diego. I uh, participated on quite a few initiatives. Blitz Week, where we housed about 100 people in three days. 25 Cities Initiative, where we worked on ending veteran and chronic homelessness. Created uh, the region's first by name list for veterans. Uh, Worked on a lot of uh, COC, Continuum of Care initiatives, such as how we score projects to get homelessness funding. Uh, long communicated with our endless elected, who's now mayor, uh, who's made so many promises over the years and so many claims on homelessness. People just doubt almost everything he says about homelessness at this point. Uh, rightfully so. And uh, probably most uh, my on-the-ground advocacy now where I do a lot of encampment support, work with, of course, unsheltered people, film the police around encampment sweeps and enforcement of, of laws that target and continue that till this day. Nice. Yeah. You're doing a lot of work on this trip. And then Levi, uh, last but not least. Hi, you guys. I'm Levi Giacalioni with Homeful Solutions. 
Um, I have a lived experience in being homeless. Um, I also work with a group of advocates called Lived Experience Advisors here in San Diego. Um, we try to hold them accountable. Um, and uh, we're also able to advocate for uh, a lot of what these people need in the recovery process, uh, just beyond like um, housing, which is the main thing. We know that uh, the real estate crisis. Um, and then I also work as a housing navigator downtown. Um, so I work with a caseload of about 200 clients, um, about 60 or 70 of them, I would say, have um, SMIs. Um, really in like, uh, kind of one of the main areas of town that, um, you know, we have a lot of these, uh, people living outdoors. So, um, I'm at kind of the front lines of it, uh, every day when it comes to people needing to get a shelter, one that they cry to, um, you know, when, when they think that it's a, uh, you know, when they don't understand that it's the system that's broken, you know, I'm the one that they get yelled at, that, that gets yelled at, but, you know, they think I'm I'm not doing enough, you know, and um, be able to see all sides of it and see the promises that get made. And I, I literally have clients come in and say, oh, hey, look, everything's going to be fine because the mayor just said this week he's opening a new shelter. And I'm like, all right, let's do the math. That's a right. And there's 8,000 homeless people in the county. So, you know, and so, um, yeah, I, I have to kind of break down that. Um, it's a good responsibility, I guess, to, to break down the system to my clients so that they can understand how broken it is, uh, you know, me being able to teach some patients to get them through the process too. So, and yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I, I want to get into how broken it is because it consistently, I think like I, every time, like I, I like to ride my bike around a lot. I'm always riding around town. Often I'll run into people who are in distress, right? Especially when we ride past the hospital, which is something we can get into. And they'll be like, oh, just, just call up. We'll sort them out with a shelter. Like, and then they'll have this horrible moment of realization when they're like, oh, shit. Like, there's nowhere for this person to go. So let's talk a little bit about Todd Gloria, right? Todd Gloria is our mayor. He's a Democrat. He ran on a very progressive uh, And what he's done has been extremely reactionary. Um, so I wanted to start just by reading some Todd tweets. Uh, Todd's a poster, um, perhaps not not as much of a poster as Rachel. Uh, Rachel Lang, his, I guess, manager, I think. Uh, she has the soul of a poster and will uh, attack people working like Michael uh, to help people, which is distressing to see. Uh, but I wanted to, uh, I wanted to talk. So I've got a few quotes here. June 22nd, 2019. Yes, I will be the first to enforce the law against those, sheltered or unsheltered, who break any law. But I will not use our code to harass and criminalize sick and poor people. That's number one. Uh, August 2019. What if we chose to take the resources we used to criminalize the homeless and redirect them to building housing instead? What if, Todd? Um, January 24th, 2019. Uh, and he's tagged Michael in this one. Maybe right, but the sad fact is that this before the PITC, that's the point in time count of unhoused people. It happens all the time. It's unfair to the unsheltered and to SDPD. My goal is to end chronic homelessness. The only way to do this is with permanent supportive housing, not criminalization. Uh, right, but that's not what you did. Uh, 
Californians of all political views know our homelessness crisis is a serious problem. More housing and services, not criminalization. It's past time to tackle this problem. I could keep going with these things, uh, but I want to get the picture. So Todd's talked a lot about how we don't need to criminalize poverty, how we don't need to criminalize living on the street, uh, and then has proceeded to criminalize living on the street, right? Um, so maybe we can just start with these happened pretty much consistently i think since todd took office and uh people might be familiar with a little bit like they may have seen some of the bikes being thrown away that that was like michael had a video of that which which had how many oh gosh i don't yeah a lot of people have seen that but perhaps one of you would like to describe like exactly like how a sweep goes down right like like this there's a process of posting sometimes a process of posting notices but you don't notices because people are encroaching like what's the sort of uh justification for it and then what does that look like uh for people on the ground february 14th of this year is when gloria started his uh sweep enforcement um it was unspoken but during covid uh they were just killing people with COVID instead of uh, by police, although the police were doing it. So the sweeps, this what the police do at the sweeps is they use a series of unconstitutional ordinances, city ordinances only existing in the city of San Diego. Um, and these unconstitutional ordinances taken together legal for um, anybody to exist in public space. So you, me, our mothers, our children, anybody in public space can be ticketed for these violations because they're so overbroad. For example, standing on a sidewalk, just being there on a sidewalk um, will be enough to, to get you a citation issued if you can't prove you have a, a house to live in. Um, these laws, like I said, they're, they're written overbroad. They apply to everyone use their discretion to only use them against poor persons. Uh, the Vehicle Habitation Ordinance um, lists a series of items that if they're found in your car, police could use those to arrest you. And those items include like food, water, trash. So everybody with food, water, or trash, doesn't have to be all three, just one of them, um, could be Objected to be arrested, have their comfort, have their taken to shelter, having their uh, children taken to CPS, and all because um, the city wants to come after poor people with with ordinances. Um, so here's the fun: the, these ordinances can be charged either as misdemeanors or infractions. Mayor Gloria announced a progressive ordinance scheme, which means on day one say Monday of the week, the individual is on day two, the individual is issued a infraction citation. That infraction citation gives them a date to appear months down the road um, to contest the case. But the very next day, they can be issued a misdemeanor. That misdemeanor citation also has a date months down the road for resolution. And then um, day four, they can be arrested and taken into custody, um, all without ever having a, a day in. in um, the citations 
uh, if they're issued to people in Midway or downtown San Diego, direct them to appear in Claremont Mesa. It's about 12 miles away. These are individuals that have mobility issues. They can't get to and from court. Can't, they can't really get to and from the end of the street very well without police threatening to take away their property. Mm -hmm. Court won't allow them to bring their property in with them. The buses won't allow them to, to bring um, their property on the buses. So they have to make a choice. Do they all the remaining property that they have in the world to go to court to defend against the charge that they're uh, really don't have the uh, the police can cite either as a misdemeanor infraction but when they cite as an infraction doesn't get um an appointed attorney and um nor jury trial and so um the punishment the issuance of the citation becomes the punishment process. We're just to get to court and take care of your responsibilities um, becomes a chore, even if later it's dismissed. Uh, we found out through public records requests that 100% of the misdemeanors that are being cited are 100% um, of them are. So people aren't getting their attempt, their, their opportunity to defend themselves in court. They're all being dismissed. Um, and so if the city was was serious about uh, believing that these individuals were committing criminal offenses, then they wouldn't be dismissing them after of them after they were were issued. So Colleen is talking about the the uh, the laws or the codes that are used to uh, use during enforcement sweeps of people out here on the street. So the police go out and use codes and municipal codes uh, to write people tickets and eventually take them to jail. That's just one kind of sweep. That's the enforcement sweeps. There's also sweeps or abatement sweeps. We call them homeless encampment sweeps or homeless community sweeps, where per settlement with past lawsuits, the city has to post three hour, 72 hour notices in areas. Then police and environmental services and cleanup crews, and they'll throw away all your belongings if you're not there. So that's another kind of sweep. So there's actually two kinds of sweeps. There's these cleanup sweeps where they throw away your belongings. And then there's the enforcement sweeps where they just go out with sometimes, oh gosh, Colleen, we've probably seen as many as 15, maybe 15 plus police go out to ticket people in a, a particular homeless community. So, and just, the ringer with all these citations that Colleen went through. Yeah. Um, and then uh, perhaps Levi, you're familiar with the system, right? I think uh, maybe the, the idea here is that the police are supposed to offer them shelter, right? Uh, and if they ask for shelter, they're supposed to offer it to them. Can you just explain that shelter can be extremely difficult or impossible for people to access? Yeah, absolutely. And then I'll tell you kind of some of the consequences that um, people face even, uh, or as a result of this, but, yeah. um, so, uh, basically like, let me paint the picture for you. So, um, our location is, uh, having housing here on site. Um, and, uh, so the clients will typically, there's a line out the gate when we get here at eight o'clock in the morning at eight o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock, all I do is shelter refer that's everybody that's coming in the door that wants to get a shelter bed for that night, that night, right? We're doing this at eight o'clock in the morning. 
And um, oftentimes I will get one or two. Some days I don't get anyone into shelter um, clock. All of those beds are full. And that's what they report back to me as the service provider, right? Is, is at nine o'clock in the morning, there's no more shelter beds. Um, and uh, on top of that, thing to to mention too is like you know the police are supposed to offer them shelter but um we have like some kind of like conglomerates as far as organizations go in the shelter space um so if a client is for some reason not allowed to go back um that's one pretty much forever um and b it could be something like behavior like they got anxiety and yelled at somebody right or it could be uh someone who can't complete their ADLs, as they call it, um, are like an incontinence issue. Um, so there's times, yes, it is sanitary and medically necessary for you to use this little uh, bottle or whatever, um, but then the shelter will then kick them out and not let them return for that kind of thing. So by nine o'clock, the shelter beds are full. Um, in the beginning, uh, when they were playing, they were doing their sweeps real early. Um, now they're doing their sweeps um, after the time that I'm being told as a service provider that the shelters are already full. And, um, and on top of that, our shelter system, you're there during the day, right? So some of these people that they're taking their stuff and throwing it away are actually in shelter. You know, they just had to take their belongings with them back to the streets where everyone can see them every day and, and, um, recently I had a client who we had spent like a month and a half trying to get him in a shelter every single day and it wasn't going through. Finally, we got him in a shelter and, um, a ticket for encroachment that, you know, was not paid and he didn't go to court. So even though he was in shelter in the middle of the day, the police officers stopped him. They arrested him for his warrant. He was in there all weekend and he lost his shelter bed. Jesus. So, yeah. So let's, um, perhaps you or Mandy could explain then, like some of the things, because yeah, under the guise of, I guess, a cleanup or a, a base, call it like often they're actively stripping people of the things that they need to access shelter, to access housing, to transport themselves around. Right. And um, so just one of you want to take on like what this means. Well, they'll, you know, they, they do it under the guise of we're going to, you know, we're cleaning up the area. Um, but they will drag entire tent people's belongings mm. and put them in the compactor. They won't go through them. They never look. Oftentimes there's medication in there, IDs, paperwork, things that, you know, people have to have to survive. Um, you know, people can't get have identification. It's really difficult for them to get identification um, living on the streets. You know, it's, it's a process and that process um, sets outreach workers back. So, you know, you've got an outreach worker who may have gotten them an ID and, you know, they've taken their, um, it's called a BSPDAT where they're entered into the housing system and they're waiting a housing match. And then their ID and everything gets thrown away. So then the outreach worker has to take time to go back their ID when they could be helping, you know, someone else get set up to maybe get into housing. Um, you know, they don't, they don't look through the things. This causes um, so much trauma for these folks. I've seen, um, so a lot of times with sweeps, um, sometimes I say, they'll allow people to gather their things and move them. 
and then they'll sweep the area. Yeah. I've seen times when they have had things, they moved their things and then the police surround their things while people are standing there and they place their things in front of them while they are begging for their things and they and they will put them in the trash compactor in front of them. And it's, I mean, the only way that you can view that is it's just punishment. Like you're not, you know, you're out here, you're poor. We don't have any options for you, but we're going to do this to deter you because we just don't want to see you here. Yeah. I like, I remember I was talking to someone downtown a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when I wanted to stop to give some folks some water and like, uh, this is the shit I chose to bring with me. Like I, I didn't, you know, it's not like I could take everything and these are the things that I wanted to keep because they were special to me. And yet now, now they're being trashed. Indeed, in 2018, I think 2018, a person was thrown in, uh, right? Yeah, like inside their tent. Um, just fucking unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, we've established that these sweeps are cruel. We've established that there's not really anywhere for people to go. Um, that they, they, they don't they don't provide a lasting solution to homelessness. They just they just move people around and make it harder for them. Um, so one of the things that we do in San Diego is that we we have this thing called a point in time count, right? And I think there have been some suggestions that the sweeps were increased in certain areas around the point in time count. So, what if you want to explain what that count like is and does? Yeah. Um, so the point in time count uh, really only captures like one night out of the year people experiencing homelessness. Um, there was a couple of obstacles um, that process this year. It was particularly really cold that night. Um, there were some tech glitches that should have been worked out uh, way more in advance. Um, uh, but um, that really only pictures like takes capture of one night. The the data I like to often refer to because it just feels more realistic to me is um, RTFH um, states that in any given year, there's 30,000 people seeking assistance for homelessness. So um, our point in time count, you know, shows one night. Um, there is data being collected all year round. Uh, so at the point in time count, you have a lot of volunteers um, go out very early in the morning. Um, they have them count the population, do some interviews with them real quick. Um, the interviews are very personal. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not necessarily something somebody wants to wake up and answer at 5 a.m., but we found some people that were, uh, you know, willing. Um, but that's, that's the point in time count in a nutshell. Okay. And then, like, what's, uh, I know that downtown, I think the downtown partnership collects their own data, right? Because the data we have is very unreliable. What's our best guess at people, like, maybe in the city sheltered at, at this time? Over 1,500 unsheltered homelessness, meaning okay. that they're not in a shelter or, you know, some kind of program. Okay. And, just, and that's just in downtown San Diego, not the whole county. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So downtown San Diego, for people not familiar, is a pretty small part of uh, a very large county, right? And um, with, I think San Diego has the highest like ratio of average income to property prices anywhere in the country now. Correctly, yes. it's, it's incredibly unaffordable. Um, so this has led 
I, I, unfortunately, but probably pretty predictably, to a number of deaths on our streets, right? And four, four last week, if we're in a seven-day period, uh, this August, as it's hot, it's, it's hot for San Diego right now. Uh, and despite this, we've seen this just, like, incredibly callous response from the city, I guess. We've seen Todd, for instance, Todd Gloria, who's our mayor, giving a speech in front of a shelter where somebody's remains were taken away a few hours before and not mentioning that someone had just passed away in that place. I want to talk to the gap between rhetoric and reality, because if you were only learning about this from the city and Todd's Twitter account, you'd think that it was fine, right? Because he's posting about these new shelter beds. But perhaps you can explain how at best that's a it's a distraction from a problem that's getting worse. I, I think that um, there's the reality that they want the public to see, and then there's the reality that's happening. Um, and I think that they're failing so badly um, at getting people into services because um, many of the services just don't fit people. Um, so they want to paint this picture that all the unsheltered people that are out in their tents living on the street or living in their vehicles are service resistant. Um, and I hear that all the time. You know, we ask them, they don't want service. It's not that people don't want services. Many of these people have tried some of the service centers in San Diego and the barriers are extremely high. Um, you know, the, the check-in time and check-out time can be difficult for people. Um, they'll separate families. So, um, you know, sometimes the, the, they'll tell you, oh, you can go in together if you're husband and wife or if you're partners. And then you get to the shelters and they say, I'm sorry, you can't be together because so you have to go to a men's shelter and you have to go to a women's shelter. Um, they'll also do that with uh, say a mother has a 16-year-old son and she needs to go into a shelter and there's not a family shelter, um, she cannot take her a women's shelter with her. He has to go into a men's shelter. Um, so, you know, then, you know, people with their pets, their only source of like love and acceptance, you know, a lot of places won't take pets. A lot of places, they're using substances. So we've got all these boundaries that are keeping people on the streets and no one's talking about that. And no one's talking about the fact that some of, not all of them, but some of the service providers are profiting off of these poor people because they represent state and federal dollars. Um, so you've got shelters that are run horribly and you know the more people that come in, they just wanna cycle them through because that gives them money. CEO and all of their family members that are, you know, working for the nonprofit. Um, and, and these people, because they're unsheltered, they don't feel they have a voice. They don't feel they can speak up because of retaliation. So they're just constantly. And then you've got the city who's saying, look at all these fantastic things we're doing, um, which is, is couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, and then they constantly use the narrative that folks are service resistant um, when services that are out there are too few and um, too difficult and just they're not meeting people where they're at and they're just setting people up to fail every time. 
another thing I want to get into with the shelters specifically is these congregate shelters, right? And what in the in the context of an ongoing pandemic that maybe is transitioning into another pandemic, can you explain what what's a congregate shelter, right? It's a long word, but it what does it mean? And how are those dangerous, especially for medically compromised or older people living on the street? Look of our shelter system here in San Diego, in the city of San Diego, is congregate shelter, uh, meaning people are just placed in one big room or in some cases, big circus type tents. We have a few of those where people are sleeping in three feet apart. So you can imagine how horrible that is for the spread of disease. That's why we've had some very large uh, outbreaks of COVID in our, in our shelter system, and, and they're frequently closed to new intakes. I think it's really important that folks know that, like you said, if you, li- if you look at uh, Mayor Gloria's Twitter or social media feed, you think they're doing everything they can, and there's all these resources. But on any given day, there may be a few dozen shelter beds literally thousands and thousands of people that are sleeping on our streets at night. And the only reason there's a few dozen shelter beds is because they've kicked some people out that day for breaking some minor rules. Most people who leave shelter street. So shelter is not a very good pathway to anything. Roughly one in seven people who leaves a city of San Diego shelter go to a permanent housing solution. That's, that's a very, very, in fact, under Mayor Gloria, I've seen some of the lowest success rates of our system than I've ever seen in my 13 years of working on this. Our, our system has actually, is, is actually working worse before Todd Gloria took over. So he has done very, very little. And it, most of what he's done has been mostly performative adding some shelter beds here and there, uh, very little on the house. In fact, he's left tens of millions of dollars on the table that he hasn't applied for. He did not utilize a California funding stream called Project Room Key that would have allowed him to rent hotel rooms, most dime on our taxpayer dime to get people off the street. He actually refused to do that. He has refused to open safe camp areas where people could go and camp and get off of the sidewalk. Many of us and and others in the community have pushed for real solutions and for him to utilize these funding sources, and he's absolutely refused to do it. Meanwhile, like we stated earlier, he has deployed garbage trucks and everybody else to go out there and make people's lives miserable. So he's just been an absolute failure on this issue. And at the same time, he's been the one who's given the most to solutions for this. It is absolutely incredible. What a disaster he has been for not only for the unsheltered community, but for San Diego. I've become, I've, that he is San Diego's worst enemy. And, and I just can't believe, as somebody who supported him, supported him in his election, urged people to vote for him, how hoodwinked I was, uh, I, I just can't believe that this guy has been so horrible for our city. And, and 
And every indication is that he's going to continue being, he's going to continue running Liddy into the ground. People die on our streets at record numbers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, but didn't, uh, when he came out of the gate, didn't Gloria, how many um, people he was going to house under his term and didn't he lowball it? Didn't he lower the number than, than in previous years? Oh yeah. That was some kind of a state or a federal government goal that he set. And he actually set a goal of housing people that was less than we had done in the previous year. So his, his big stretch was to actually house fewer people. I, I, I don't, I don't even know if he's even getting there. Right. I mean, right. this guy, this, this guy is unbelievable. The kind of nonsense that he is pulling on the citizens of our city. It, it is unbelievable. He has invested so much in PR and he's got these folks who, who are just good at spinning the, this, this nonsense to make it sound good. And because he gets a lot of media, a big, obviously a big pulpit to, to, to spew this nonsense from, he, he's, he's able to get a lot of people to believe it. Now on homelessness, anybody who has a decent set of eyes is basically calling bullshit. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot of people anymore who think we're, we're doing very well on this issue. And so I, I think he's going to have a harder and harder time convincing people that he's worthy of worthy of re-election of a higher office at some point, which is all he seems to care about. Yeah. And, and can I add some more? So, so he's personally to blame. He has personal involvement of getting rid of 10,000 SROs, single rental units that, that if we had minus our 8,000 homeless people, we would not have homelessness. Yes. So he got rid of units that he was required to replace and never replace them. That's his fault. Um, I call him a monster. I, I was, uh, you know, going to criminalize, but he was a Republican. We expected it of him. And he didn't tell it, promise us he was going to end criminalization to get our vote. Um, one of the reasons that, or, or probably the only, the main reason that, that Gloria didn't put funding into Project Room Key, um, was because the city is in this unique position of owning and operating the nonprofit that runs the convention center. So when COVID hit, they were looking at the nonprofit going belly up events in there and having to lay off all their staff. So instead of putting people in hotels where they'd be safe, they put them in the convention center where they'd be exposed to COVID and would die. But the city funded convent, um, nonprofit would be funded. So um, that's just. And $132 million is what Todd Gloria got the city to, to pay out on a settlement on Ash Street. Ash was his boondoggle. He cost us that. He convinced city council to invest all this money to slide donor money to, slide city money to his donors. What is and Ash now, Street for, for listeners who aren't familiar with our real estate grift scene? <laughs> so, James, if you yeah. were going to go buy a house right now, uh, mm-hmm. you would think it is important. A property inspection, correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. Would you think it would be important to uh, Google or seek out documents that may uh, inform you of asbestos prior to your purchase? Yeah, I'd want to know that. Yeah, so 
these are two of the opportunities that they missed when they entered this deal with um uh with the 101 ash street um so they basically had a uh middleman sistera uh come in and purchase the property and then lease to own it back to the at no time was an inspection done um the asbestos was uh uh people were aware of it um but uh there was no studies done on what the impact was going to be and all that so now we've got ourselves sunk into this deal that um is taxpayers 202 million dollars right so i punched some of the maths okay yeah and if you assume uh that one year's rent is twenty four thousand dollars, right yeah uh 202 million divided by twenty four thousand dollars is more than eight thousand people that this taxpayer money you know and it's always it, it's just and it's in a cycle and it's it's not only the cycle there but it's we don't have enough police so they're bringing in more police when we don't have the housing and then the police that we do have are working overtime to pick up shopping carts and throw away tents you know so um, yeah so the, the ash street deal there's plenty to go it is uh like historically going to go down in, in san diego's screw-ups for sure yeah it's a giant monument to grift go ahead colleen but we don't have any police is also more gaslighting we have started practicing law 30 years ago two police officers would show up at the scene now at least six police officers show up every single time we yeah. have an overblight of of police and uh we could afford to lay off two-thirds agreed yeah <laughs> yeah uh but instead we just built a child care center for them uh, right. yeah just piggyback on that real quick about the yeah. police um one I think um, they also push the narrative that, you know, there's this hot team, the homeless outreach team, that mm -hmm. the police, they never take water, they never really take anything, um, and they search for unsheltered people. And, and they rarely get any traffic to these things, and people often wonder why. Um, we cannot expect unsheltered people to trust and accept help from people that criminalize them, terrorize them, harass them, and throw their things away. Um, so, you know, adding more police to deal with homelessness um, is just also a waste of money. It causes more trauma to the unsheltered people. It's unnecessary. So we're talking about this duality between like, uh, like what's said and what, what, what exists on the street, right? And it's, it's very apparent. Uh, people on the internet love to be wrong about George Orwell. Uh, but the, the one time recently where I felt that like Orwell would be a useful thing to deploy is the idea of a care court, like, um, which is the thing that Todd's been very strong on, but Gavin Newsom's pushed, right? Uh, courts, in my opinion, don't care about people. Uh, so can someone explain what a care court is and why it's relevant in this setting? So the framework of this is you have a bunch of um, liberals in Gloria and uh, Gavin Newsom's ear saying, we have, to, we have to end homelessness. And the politicians are saying, oh, well, we can't end homelessness because they're all mentally ill drug users. Okay, so that's the first premise that we're working with, and they're not. 10% are uh, use drugs and have mental illness in a debilitating, to a debilitating extent in the homeless population. Um, uh, 
is parallels the, the rate of drug use in the house community. We don't take houses away from drug users who are housed and make them get sober before we return their houses to them. So requiring that they be sober before the house is asked backwards. Um, we have to get them into housing first. Now, the uh, care court is set up just to pass more money to their donors. That's all it's set up to do. It's not going to um, ease anything. It's going to uh, set up a situation where if a person is considered gravely disabled, then they can be put into a conservatorship. And gravely disabled is defined as unable to provide shelter for oneself. So essentially, everybody who is poor, gravely disabled, and the rich who got them in this position can make all the decisions for them. I'm very passionate about this because it's it's cruel and it's 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 essentially the return of all the uh, that was set set turned off the whole reason that you know reagan got every get everybody released from the prisons because of the mental illness but he never paid there was never any payment into community mental health services so um now they want to return them to the institutionalization after never providing any street, a sufficient street um, services for them. And that's, that's just uh, cruel. Yeah. And so with um, the whole care court plan, there's like a rules in it. One is that it does not mention that there is any housing uh, stipulation at all. So it does not say that the conservator must provide them shelter. Um, the check-in guidelines are once every 30 days, which is about the time period that we have them check in with their case managers is at least once every 30 days. Um, and they also try to try to tell it like, um, well, it's it could be temporary, right? Like once they get better, then they'll be off the concern. As to me is it's like, okay, you force them into treatment. And then once they get kicked out of treatment, you say, okay, they're healed. And then, you know, they're back away from their services. And I've had clients who thought uh, maybe a conservatorship is right for me, like begging where they're like, I just can't do stuff right. Like, you know, um, and I had one client specifically ask me to be her conservator and I care about her so much. Um, and if I thought that her having a conservator would really benefit her. But as of right now, there's no difference in um, whether a conservator can get somebody shelter better than me as a service provider or if they can get them into a treatment program better than a service provider. Now, Colleen was talking about how only 10% of our homeless population has a drug. In San Diego County as a whole, 15% of San Diegans have a uh, substance use issue, right? My, my 10% was debilitating, a debilitating. Okay, um, yeah. okay good to clarify. <laughs> um, instead, 15% is way more than our homeless population. Those aren't the only ones with um, substance use. But if you are on Medi-Cal, right, if you're low income and low income in, in San Diego is anyone making less than $76,000 per year, um, which is a lot more people than they realize, if you are low income. Um, uh, can I can I bump in just because I, yeah. you said if you're low income, but I have some memes here. I want to point some facts on the care court. Care court okay. to address houselessness. $5 million budget, zero will go to housing and zero will go to mental health services. That's shocking. Zero to mental health services or housing. Care court will weaponize its unchecked power and worsen the historical violence against communities. 
and care court claims to address mental health ability, disabilities, but allows a judge to rob anyone they find unfit of autonomy over their health, home, and life. Yeah. And I did remember my thoughts. So, um, like the people on Medi-Cal, um, they're, as far as, it's like, you, we already know fentanyl's in everything now. Even if somebody thinks they're getting coke or or whatever they think it is, typically there is fentanyl in it. So um, anyone who does wish to go through uh, a detox, um, it's impossible to get them beds. I have clients who come and they're like, "Please, I know, I know, I gotta get work this out of my life, and I'm I'm gonna try. Can you get me into detox?" And we'll spend the whole day, you know, and 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 there's one, and like all these people are competing for the detox facility. So if it was like we had the infrastructure set up and we had this awesome mental health care and we had these awesome like street medics and street therapy and we had, okay, and everyone in the conservatorship is going to uh, be housed at this place, like maybe, but like this whole thing is just, it's, it's a load of crap. So if we had, if we had all those things, if we had a good system, that had good substance use treatment, good mental health care and housing, we wouldn't have all these folks on the street. Amen. And so it's kind of interesting that they're creating something to solve an issue that they don't have the infrastructure to solve. But I think it's important to note that uh, Care Court is a conservatorship, but we already have conservatorship laws. Conservatorship laws, they're very strict. It's a very high threshold to get somebody conserved currently. For good reason. You're taking away somebody's civil, you're taking away somebody's rights to, to make their own decisions, is what a conservatorship. But for some folks that are gravely disabled and, and impaired, uh, it is the best thing to do. It's for you know for very few people, but but the the city attorneys and the people in the hospital. Uh, the workers, uh, they don't want to go through it because it is very difficult and challenging. And oftentimes the judge, the judge will deny it because that's how important it is for people to have these civil rights. So sometimes you even have to do it multiple times with somebody who prob you know, who may actually need it. And I speak from firsthand experience of helping people, you know, go through this process and try to you know, and conservatorship on somebody who just really, really needs it. Care court would lower that threshold so much. I, I doubt it's legal. I, I'm sure it's going to get challenged in court. It it, it is such a, da a a dangerous leap against our civil liberties, our civil rights, uh, that I, I just am going to find it incredible if, if judges allow this to move forward when it's challenged. Uh, but the point is that people need help. They need care, not court. And if we would provide the care, which our elected officials don't want to do, I think this is just a cop out on their part. I think this is, this is the elected official saying, uh, we have failed, so we'll just punt it to the courts and let them take ownership and control of this, which in effect, the courts are just kicking it to the county. Is our 
behavioral health provider who's going to have to provide these services and be responsible for these folks. I think this is going to be such a train wreck. But the one thing it is illuminating is that our behavioral health system is so broken, so dysfunctional that they would even be trying to do this. I think it's basically a an indictment system. And but care court's not going to fix anything. That's and I think it's setting people up for failure. I I've talked to a, some families who are who are really uh now these are who have uh me, seriously mentally ill loved ones, whether it's spouses or or children um, siblings, they, they see this as a silver bullet to get their loved ones. And maybe it works better for that segment of the population because they have somebody, they have a loved one as an advocate to make sure that the care is, the care is the focus, but for, for unsheltered folks, they're going to be abused and used by this system. Uh, maybe warehoused. Uh, who knows? They're going to end up worse off, in my opinion. And so uh, I'm against it as it's written and certainly fear that the implementation of it is going to be a travesty uh, that I, I just can't imagine. Can't imagine this so-called liberal state uh, would try to trample the rights of people like this. And, oh boy, I tell you, it's, there's so much dangerous about this that I, I mean, we could, we could have a whole about this and maybe, and I'm sure there will be a lot of talk about this down the road. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what I want to do is focus a little bit to finish up here on some solutions. So the things that a lot of you guys are doing, uh, right now to provide people with help to provide people with the basic living a, a dignified existence and like how the state could do better right like what what housing first solutions look like what solutions are informed by evidence rather than just informed by sort of cruelty and the desire to brush the problem aside what are those look i think you have to you know you can't expect people to get well on the street so you've, you've got to get them inside um, and congregate shelters. We've already talked about why those are so problematic on so many levels. Um, there is a model in San Diego that's being used by a nonprofit. Uh, right now, it's only for elderly um, individuals. Uh, it's called Housing for the Homeless. And they put um, unsheltered elderly folks in hotel rooms. And it's had tremendous success. For some reason, it cannot get funding. Um, county funding. Um, but getting these people off the street and out of survival mode is first and foremost. And then you've got them in a stable place so that services can find them when they need them. They can get the get mental health services. Um, you know, we need to bolster our, our rehab and addiction um, services. We also need more harm reduction. Um, you know, it can take you one to three hours to detox at 
McAllister, which is the only um, detox center in San Diego, south of Encinitas. And detox is separate from um, sober living. So you may detox and then it may be another one to three week way um, get into sober living, which is just enough time to get turned back out on the streets and relapse again. Um, and after that, even there's no housing at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, really the the biggest thing that we're missing is housing. And then everything else trickles down from there. Um, you know, just building these relationships with people so that they can can trust that you're on their side and you're not going to lie to them, give them empty promises or or use them in some way to uh, to monetize them for is one of the the biggest things that I've found of importance for me as an on the ground um, you know outreach worker and doing mutual aid. Um, you know, most of the time these people just don't have water. You know, they're they're thirsty, they're hungry. Um, but poverty looks like. Um, so I, I think we've, you know, we've got to get these people inside um, immediately. And then we start deploying the resources to them um, to help them recover from the trauma or, you know, whatever trauma led them to be in that situation. Um, I think people often forget that a lot of folks on the street, um, you know, there's the foster to the streets pipeline, there's the jail to the streets pipeline. So, you know, many people don't end up on the streets because they have family to help them. And a lot of these folks on the streets, they don't have any family members. So, um, you know, as a community, we need to step up and be their family. So that, that's great. And I think I think we, we have to understand that the homeless service system, and I'm going to talk about some of the good things that are, it's, it's important for people to know there's a ton of stuff happening, uh, both grassroots all the way up. But it's important to understand that the homeless service system can only do so much. As, as Mandy was talking about, these pipelines that feed homelessness, people are becoming homelessness. I've never seen so many new people out here on the street in my work. I'm on the street some part, well, a lot of the every day. And I'm seeing more new people than I've ever seen in my last 13 years. And there's all these feeder systems. It's, it's child welfare. It's foster care. It's, it's, it's the education system. You, you know, you can name it. It's, it's uh, the healthcare system. All these things are feeding homelessness. It's, the, it's the, how we've commoditized housing. It's, I mean, I can go on and on talking about what's feeding homelessness. It's safety nets. It's the lack of good mental health care and substance use uh, care. So homeless services cannot control these things up above these systems, these billion dollar systems that are feed, that are failing people and feeding homelessness. What system is, and I like to say they've got a lot of mission creep going on here because ideally they really should be focused on getting people into housing and out of homelessness, but they've become this, this big system that uh, is really getting very costly, inefficient and ineffective. But we know what solves homelessness. Housing and services solve homelessness, period. And it works. We see when these new quality projects like Zephyr or Trinity Place, these uh, they're not projects, they're housing. They're housing with services. So we call them projects, but they're just like any other apartment building, really, except they have supportive services for folks. And they work extremely well. They have a 95% plus of keeping folks housed, even folks who have some 
who are disabled and have some significant issues. And it helps provide that self-sufficiency by providing a deep rental subsidy and supportive services for folks who aren't take care of their own rent totally themselves. There is no free housing. Everybody who gets these, these units pays 30% of their income, whether it's disability income, social security, retirement, whatever, they're paying some free housing. People are helping themselves. And that's really important to say. And they're participating in services. But once you're in housing, your participation in services rates go up because people want to keep going better and stay in the housing. These things are being built, they're being built as we speak, but at a snail's pace. And that's the things that I fault our elected leadership for is they're nibbling around the edges. So Todd, has Todd Gloria done some? A few, but they're so small and he blows them up to like, he's solving something and he's not. Has the county done some good things? Yeah, they've actually done more good things than I've ever seen them do, but it's still not anywhere that we need. They've opened up some mental health crisis centers that are actually walk-in centers. They've put together some mental health crisis teams that respond to a small percentage of cases of when you call 911, but it is helping. All of these, what really needs to be done is the things that we know work need to be taken to scale. But we have to also understand the challenges of that. We can't just fault the elected officials for some things they don't have control over. As we all know, there's it's hard time, it's a hard time hiring people. So we need a lot more staff that work with that are providing mental health services and substance use services. But we won't get there. And this is officials have have a lot of fault is they've really not put a priority in on this issue. And this is where there's the biggest disconnect. On one hand, you have Todd Gloria constantly saying how this is his number one issue. On the other hand, his know that. I, I'm a big believer in, in bicycle safety and safe roads and things like that, but he seems to put more importance on a bike lane than he does solving homelessness. And they're both important, but 500 people dying on our streets uh, because they're homeless, that's, you know, he, he needs to put, he needs to back up his, his talk with action. Just like, you know, they're, they're expanding some bike lanes. And I think, uh, I think they need to do it a lot smarter because some of them don't seem to be that safe to me, but, uh, that's a whole nother show too. Yeah. yeah that's so yeah. That's that's not, that I shouldn't be involved in, but, <laughs> but, uh, they don't seem to be very strategic to me and they be very, they don't seem to care. They seem to be more interested in hoodwinking the public so they can get their next job. We need people who care, mostly that care about people, but also care money efficiently and effectively. But some of the grassroots stuff, uh, like I say, getting people into hotel rooms and then getting into housing is a good pathway. Uh, the county opened a small shelter. I think it's 44 beds or so. Uh, it's the first they opened that's really more tailored toward people with substance use and mental health needs. It has a great uptake rate and, and, and the feedback from people on the streets is good. So here we have something that the county did that was good. We need a lot more of them. They're opening another jumbo tent. So 
these things are very frustrating to folks like myself and Mandy, Colleen, uh, the different people, the, the, the people who are actually on the ground working that are trying to get people into. We know what we know, the things that people will go into, including substance use help. But whenever you try to get somebody in it and you're told there's a three week waiting list, you lose that person. They want to go. Now you got to be responsive to the person's uh, motivation in that moment to get the help, and it's heartbreaking for people like Mandy and me who are out there on the street, and people are crying out for this help. Bullshit! When these folks, whether it's the police or the mayor, say that there's the people don't want help, it's really disgusting because when you're on the street like we are. And people are pleading for this help and we can't help them because it's not available. And we call bullshit. We call bullshit on, on the rhetoric that comes out of, of these people's mouths. We know the people. We see their faces. Those tears are real. That pleading for help is real. And help them if we do what's right. And so... Uh, we could talk all day about some of the good things, too, that the grassroots uh, people like Mandy are out there um, just on the ground. doing this. None of us here on this call except for Levi. Levi works within the system and thank goodness for him. And I, the last thing I want to say, and I, I, I'm always remiss if I don't remind, remember to say this, but I always want to send a shout out not the fault on of the hardworking people on the street whether you're paid or not i just want to say thanks to all of the folks who take on this job paid or not to go out and help people firsthand do the best with this shitty system that they're given so there's a lot of people who take very little pay they do this because they care or the volunteers who do it because they care to help people and there's a lot of folks out and hard to help folks and they are helping people one by one by one and we need the support we need we have to have the support of of the todd glorias and the nathan fletchers of the world and the gavin newsoms to do the right thing and and to keep funding what works and to quit doing what doesn't and so um I think it's just important to round out by saying that. Yeah, I think it's very good. All of you are out helping people. Uh, I see it all the time on your on your social media. Where can people find you, uh, and how can they support what you're doing? If it's getting people tents, getting people water, that kind of thing. Uh, should we start with? Uh, uh, let's just go down the list. I'll start with Mandy. <clears throat> I usually. Um kind of bum off of Michael for funding <laughs> um, because uh, most of everything I do, um, I pay for myself. Um, so he has, he does a GoFundMe and then, you know, he'll be like, Hey, I got GoFundMe money. And, you know, I meet him and he like loads up my car and off I go. Um, you know, people can, can find me on Twitter. Um, Cooper too. Um, I'm, I'm very passionate. So, um, you know, it's like, be careful <laughs> what you look at on my feed. Um, you know, I just, I love these people and, um, I, I want to see them because they're, I want to see them get the help and, 
One thing that Michael taught me in the very beginning of this, because, you know, I started this um, maybe about two, three years ago. One thing that Michael said to me that resonated with me, because, you you know, like, I call them parades now, which are like liberal marches, um, you know, yelling at buildings when no one's in and, you know, then going home and feeling good about what I did. Um, and he said, you know, Mandy, he said, social justice issue that everyone fights for Black Lives Matter, immigration, um, disability, um, you know, all of these things come together. LGBTQIA+, all of those people are overrepresented in the homeless population. And so it shakes down to that. And so I thought, you know, my mind was like blown and I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm out here marching for people. Most marginalized of them are living on the street. Um, and there's very little help for those people because unfortunately, whether what whatever marginalized group you come from, when you become that overtakes all of them. And there is a huge public hatred for unsheltered people. And it is bipartisan across the board. Um, so we, we all just need to realize that this is, you know, this is a societal failure and a social justice. Um, and I, I hope that, you know, more people would, will get up and, and get, go to the ground and start talking to your unsheltered neighbors, try to, to build a relationship with them, reach out to their humanity. Um, and, and one person, if each of us just did it with one person, it would make such a difference. Even if you can't get them in housing or you don't have a lot of money, literally just treating them like a human being means so much to these folks. Yeah, this, that's very important. Um, <laughs> Khalid, what would you like to say? Where can people find you? How can they help? That was just like how to find us, right? <laughs> um, I know. <laughs> I thought it was great. Welcome it. Sorry. No, I, I thought it was really good. We should have a Mandy. Um, I, uh, I, my name's Colleen Cusack, C-U-S-A-C-K. Uh, you can Google me and find me. I am in searchable in the attorney directory. My number is 619-823-4 And my email address is C, another C-U-S-A-C-K dot policy at gmail.com. Um, and I'm on uh, Twitter uh, at symbol which stands for objection. Great. Thank you. All right, Michael. So I, like Mandy, I've just funded my work myself also, except for about, oh, two ago, I was out on the street uh, filming some sweeps, watching the police and the environmental service workers throw away people's tents. And, and I, and I, um, and I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go get those people some new tents. Officer told me, go ahead, we can throw them out faster than you can give them out. And I tweeted about that. And, you know, I think it really, you know, it struck a chord with people. So I've had people, offer, but I've just had this real outpouring of, of offerings to help lately. So for the first time ever, I set up a GoFundMe. And in the first day, I just said, you know, this is just to help support encampments that are impacted by the sweeps or, or whatever other 
grassroots people like Mandy who are out there. And I think I raised about $3,000 in the first day. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that it really was touching because, you know, I didn't even hardly, I just put it out on Twitter, I think. And I haven't promoted it much since, but I think we're up to six or $7,000. Why are we and, shopping? And I use that <laughs> <laughs> every day. Yeah. I don't wear you. <laughs> the, um, uh, I'm retired, so I get to do this all day long. Uh, people like Mandy, they have a job. They're doing this as a second job that's unpaid. So, um, uh, so what I do is, 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 is help, uh, is to buy stuff. I, I help other, other organizations. Uh, I also, uh, promote vetted, uh, GoFundMe's of other people on my social media site. So I really would appreciate you following me on Twitter. It's at homelessness, homelessness, SD on Facebook. It's homelessness, new San Diego on, on Instagram. It's the same. And on YouTube, it's, I think it's homelessness, new San Diego on YouTube. I just started a YouTube page, but I just started posting stuff on there. (laughs) So I have a lot of followers. It's a pretty active conversation, especially on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I get the mayor's people lashing out at me, attacking me because they don't like me calling them out. Um, I get, I I get haters on there too. I let them voice their opinion. Uh, I I let the conversation flow. Um, But what I do is you're what, and I I do warn you that especially on Twitter, it's heart wrenching stuff. On the yeah. ground, I'm seeing people die. I'm seeing horrible stuff, and I'm I'm sharing it with you because I think people deserve to know the truth. The elected officials, like Mayor Todd Gloria, they don't want you to know the truth, but I'm going to bring it to you. I work every- to bring you the truth that's going on out here on the street, and it's ugly. It it it's it, but it's also I also see some amazing stuff. I, I also see some amazing heartwarming stuff. People helping people. So it's everything. Roller coaster ride, folks. So, you know, uh, just be prepared. And from there, you can find my GoFundMe. Um, but most of all, you can get educated on the issue. Make up your own mind. Uh, the bullshit that's spewed out of City Hall. Uh, see it on the ground for yourself. Uh, I take people out with me. Uh, I, I do a lot of work with the media. But but just 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 join the conversation. Conversation, learn, donate if you want to. Learn where you can donate your time to other people. Yeah, message me. You can come with me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're just real people out there doing you know doing. And yeah. I worked within the system trying to. I went to all these meetings. I, I spent a whole ton of money. Within the, within the mainstream system, which I'll never do again because it's a black hole. So I mostly promote grassroots stuff. And um, we're just out there doing it and, and doing what we can uh, in a very difficult situation. But join the conversation and see what's going on. And yeah. thanks, James. I just I appreciate all your support over the years, uh, both. Uh, amplifying our messages, getting messages out on social media, and just for everything that you do on social justice issues and 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 safety issues, um, 
So, and hold them accountable on the bike stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely will do. That's another episode. I will plug Levi on Levi's behalf because uh, Levi had to jump off to sort out an emergency, but it's which on Twitter is at the solution 619. Uh, you can find them there. Uh, and Levi can help folks if they are in San Diego access services. Um, so yeah, that's been us today. Please do follow these people. Try and be a good neighbor to the unhoused community wherever you are. Feel free to reach out to any of us if you need some help or advice on how to do that or want to come out here in San Diego. All right, thank you very much, everyone. Appreciate you taking some of your afternoon. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this, I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter, that's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about how the world is falling apart and sometimes about how to put it together. Today, mostly about the people who are accelerating the falling apart. Garrison's with me. Shireen's with me. We are talking today about the Merchant of Death, the Lord of War, Victor Boot. Uh, so we should probably start off by talking We're talking about Victor Boot. Uh Victor Boots is always an interesting topic of conversation, but he's come up recently because he's one of the people who has been proposed to be exchanged for two U.S. citizens held by Russia, uh, one being Brittany Griner and one being Paul Whelan. So I'm guessing folks are pretty familiar with the Brittany Griner situation. If if not, what's the what's the uh, uh, TLDR on that? Yeah, TLDR is Brittany Griner is a two-time Olympic gold medalist. Uh, she's a basketball player, and she often plays off-season basketball in Russia, which tells you a lot about uh, in wages between men and women in professional sport and. Unfortunately, when she was traveling to Russia, I guess she had a weed vape cartridge in her bag. And so she was arrested and accused of drug smuggling. Oh my God. Yeah. Which, it, uh, uh, yeah, it, like it's as you, as, as we go through this, it will become very clear that I don't think it's controversial to say that the Russian state engages in hostage taking, right? It, it, oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I don't think that's like a controversial statement. This lady is not drug smuggling. Yeah. Uh, I too would probably want to take drugs if I had to spend my off seasons in Russia. But like, uh, it's so transparent what they're doing. It's like, they don't even attempt to not, it's just, yeah, it's, they're not being sneaky about it. They're very clearly being like, we're taking this person hostage. Yeah. And we will hold this person hostage until you give us the person that we want back. Right, like, and even uh, so, there was a um, he, he was a marine held by Russia. So there's Paul Whelan is the other guy, right? Uh, Paul Whelan was a marine. He had a he didn't have a dishonorable discharge. Uh, he had what's called uh, I think an other than honorable. He was doing a couple of things. He was embezzling shit from the United States government, uh, which is pretty based. Uh, yeah, yeah, we should all be so lucky. Um, and he was also writing bad checks. His checks were bouncing. Uh, so he booted from the Marine Corps for that and was doing some kind of private security work, it seemed like. So he was arrested in Russia in 2019. Another former Marine uh, called Trevor Reed was arrested. And his case is just like, well, it's not comic, but the, the guy was driving with his girlfriend at the time. They'd been on a big night out. They were in a car. He got drunk, got belligerent, started getting fighty. Uh, and they pulled over and some of his mates were like, look, if you don't calm down, so you keep fighting with us. They called the police. The police were like, right, we'll take you in. You'll sleep it off. We'll deal with you in the mornings, kick you out. And then at some point the next morning, the FSB turned up. Uh, which is like the inheritor of the legacy of the KGB. Like, oh, Trevor, why did you attack the cops last night? Why, why did you do that? Why, why would you assault the police, the Russian police? And he was like, what are you talking about, bro? And uh, they were like, yeah, you're going to jail. You're a spy. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Government Biden, under Biden, swapped him out. 
And the two who are left, well, there, there are other people left, obviously, but... Uh, Wait, who Wheeler, was swapped out for, for the other guy? Trevor Reed. Uh, I'm not sure who was traded uh, for Trevor Reed. Like, it's I the th- most, like, weird... I mean, it's, nothing is too strange at this point, but, like, when you really... Countries, like, trading people. <laughs> yes. It's so strange to me. Yeah, he was... Uh, he was... Uh, he was... Uh, one who was in here on drug crafting charges, I guess. Oh. Um, so they they switch out Reed, right? But Reed and, and Whelan have become close in their captivity, and, and Reed's been a big advocate for having Whelan released. Uh, Whelan's kind of yeah, yeah. You're taking the piss if you think Brittany Griner's a drug trafficker, but Whelan does have like five different nationalities. Uh, I think. Uh, he's he's got American, he's got Canadian, he might only have four. I think he's got British and Irish. So he's a former service member in the United States. And like this guy was broke, right? He was he was bouncing checks. As we'll learn in this episode, um, one of the things intelligence agencies tend to like is people who are bouncing checks. Those of those people are easy to recruit, right? Like if you're if you're if you're trying to buy shit that you can't afford. <laughs> Uh, you might be easier to recruit if you uh, if, if they offer you money, right? So uh, it's I'm not saying no idea whatsoever. I got no unique insight into that, but uh, I am saying that like his case is a little bit more interesting. So the United States has proposed trading Victor Boot for both Griner and Whelan. That was kind of doing the rumor. Fashion source confirmed it last weekend so uh, that's why we want to talk about uh victor boot today it's spelled b-o-u-t by the way if anyone's looking it up if people are familiar with uh victor boot at all it was probably from the nicholas cage film lord of war uh, have you seen that either of you no i subjected chris to it uh now chris can't make the podcast so uh that's good. We'll be Nicolas Cage free in this. <laughs> uh, it is a pretty epic film. It's a good Wait, film. Wait, does Nicolas Cage play Boot? Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. In a, uh, like I need to see that. I yeah. need to see that. Yeah. Uh, I wish uh, yeah, I wish I could share with you just the scene where like it's he just turns to the camera. Like there's uh, there's 550 million guns in the world. That's one for every 12 people. And my only question is how do we arm the other 11? Uh, but at some point, he like just puffs on a fat cigar in the middle of that. Does he have an accent? No, he doesn't do a Russian. <laughs> Disappointing. <laughs> uh, allegedly, that's a real quote uh, from from Victor Boot. By the way, uh, you can find a clip. We can slice it in. Yeah, I can find a clip. I got one. Uh, I got one lined up on my computer. I will uh, send I'll it make- to our our fair editors. There are over five hundred and fifty million firearms in worldwide circulation. That's one firearm for every 12 people on the planet. The only question is, how do we arm the other 11? It's great. It's classic Nicolas Cage. He can't do anything wrong. So, the f- so true. Yeah. yeah. Ghost, ghost writer never happened. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> nope. It's been erased from my memory. So aside from uh, Nicolas Cage's excellent portrayal, the film isn't isn't that accurate. Uh, Notably, he didn't actually grow up in Brighton Beach, old Victor. Um, He grew up in Dushanbe. uh, That's uh, 
it was in the Tajik province of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, right? Now it's in Tajikistan. Uh, and we know, oh, well, there's a lot of stories about this guy. It's very hard to confirm which of them is true. Uh, there are, he's clearly told as many background stories as he's met new groups of people when he's moved around. As, his mum is on the scene. Uh, so we do know that his mother is still alive. I think she's 85. Uh, she will occasionally pop up in the Russian press uh, and ask Joe Biden to let her poor innocent son go, um, which is very amusing. His was a car mechanic. Uh, so he's not like a child of privilege, particularly. Uh, but at some point, he seems to have joined the Soviet military, probably the Air Force. And he trained at their military academy of languages. Um, Guy's capacity for language is insane. Like he can go down the shops in like fifteen different languages. He can speak fluently in half a dozen. Uh, he he can you know order a sandwich in like twenty languages. Yeah, he, I want that power. <laughs> yep, don't we all? It it seems to be like um, these people who like thrive uh, in in like non-state activities and crime and stuff like do seem to. Like having a capacity for language benefit in that world. And you hear about it quite a lot. Um, later on, when he's in prison in Thailand, he learns Sanskrit. Um, he doesn't bother to learn Thai. Like he doesn't want people to think they can understand what he's saying. <laughs> but uh, fuck it, I'll learn Sanskrit while I'm here. Like I'm running out of options. Uh, so, yeah, he's got this amazing capacity for language, which probably ends up with him being a spook uh it's not we like we, it's not for the kgb but it seems that way we know that he was bouncing around in angola uh, as part of the civil war there so um it's it's unlikely that he was a pay clerk or like the, the guy who changed the tires on the airplanes uh, and them to angola and um, and when the soviet union collapses uh victor is in angola right or at least he gets to Angola pretty quickly. Uh, not, I think, because it's the place he wanted to be, but because places that had the least regulations on civilian use of military aircraft. Uh, so this is where he goes from KGB dude who speaks a lot of languages to beginning to be this international arms sort of uh, god. Uh, and he does that by buying these Antonov planes. Uh, People might not be familiar with Antonov. It's just a giant plane. It's a huge cargo plane. Uh, obviously, a little bit outdated now, but you'll still see them. But um, it's like the Russian big hauler, right? It carries a lot of stuff to a lot of places. And by getting those and having absolutely zero morals, he launches his career. And like, he's not just selling weapons. He's... Um, American people don't get this. Like we have this British stereotype of like the wheeler dealer, um, as epitomized by like Del Boy in the TV series called Only Fools and Horses. But he's like a market trader. He'll buy whatever he thinks he can score wherever he thinks he can sell it expensive, right? So he's moving like frozen chicken at one point. He's moving flowers from South Africa. And like throughout his career as this massive international arms dealer, he'll just be like, oh, chicken over. Right, let's move that chicken over here. We can make a killing. Like, uh, he doesn't. I think, like, we should stress that he's not like a guy who's obsessed with 
uh, with like guns and weapons and killing people, I don't think. I think he's a guy who has absolutely zero. And it's just like, well, there's a high profit margin on guns, so that's what I'll move. But I don't think it's like, there's, there seems to be no moral angle to his, his existence. Um, like, very quickly after doing that, he's Democratic Republic of Congo. He's selling into Liberia in the conflict there, Sierra Leone. Uh, Rwanda, after the genocide, he's there, right? Um, but he's also like transporting French troops to Rwanda. He'll be doing contracts for the United States government, for the British government, for most of the Western governments that participate in the, the forever war, right? And um, it's very funny, actually, like during the phase when the United for him, which is a bit later when he becomes like a wanted man, uh, he keeps doing these different shell companies, right, to avoid things like sanctions. And the way that he, uh, the way that the United States Department of Justice publishes their list, they'll be every year, right, no one can do business with these companies. They're bad. They're connected to arms dealing. And then the United States Department of Defense will go down its list of people it does business with and be like, oh, shit, there's like six of them who we, we're like integrally relying on. And then... And so it's fine because they changed the name, and and then this like there it's like Tom and Jerry or Whack a Mole, you know, he keeps popping up with these new companies. Uh, so he sort of really gets this massive boost uh, around two thousand and one uh, with nine eleven. So nine eleven is a big win for him. Uh, <laughs> it's his. Yeah, uh, well, uh, that's the episode, everybody. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's the soundbite. That's the soundbite. Yeah. So he's super tight with um, Ahmed Shah Massoud. People are familiar with the, what we call the Northern Alliance, right? Um, the uh, the people in Afghanistan who the United States backed to fight the Taliban. Uh, he'd been selling weapons to Massoud for a while, uh, and he he seems to actually like with Massoud. Like he talks about him, and we'll get on to how we know him talking about him in a little bit. But he talks about him very fondly. He he's he's a big Massoud guy, and um, so. He claims he doesn't trade with the Taliban uh, and he, he holds for a long ass time until a crew, his plane and crew are held by the Taliban uh, at an airport in Afghanistan, which like, how did they get there, Victor? Um, there's two really like how they escape. The one story is that like the Taliban require them to maintain this plane every so often because they want to be able to use the plane, right? So um, these these Russian guys or these these contractors for Victor are, uh, for boot are doing the plane, and then they like in sort of like a Michael Caine movie style, like cosh their guards over the head, jumpstart the plane, and just pin it to the end of the runway, take off, and fly to freedom. And that's the narrative popular until Victor Boot was like, nah, like I know all those people. I just called and was like do you want to do business with Victor Boot or do you want to hold this plane hostage because it's one or the other and you're fucked without me? Um, see, yeah, it's a shame. I like I like story I like story two. Story yeah, like, two is objectively, in my opinion, a little bit more badass on his part. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's, that's the true. power he has. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think when this, this guy clicks his fingers, the world, uh, the world listens. Uh, did until he was in prison learning Sanskrit. 
Right. Yeah, uh, if you're the pilot. There's there was an interview I found on YouTube with one of his pilots as well. Where he's like, yeah, man, you can't do that for very long. He's like, we're constantly landing. Like, we're being shot at when we're landing. We're being shot at when we're... We get on the ground and just, like, yeet everything out the back and then just take off again. And, like, we make a ton of money because no one else is prepared to do that. But it probably isn't great for your long-term well-being. Um, so he's by of peak of his career in the early 2000s he's got hundreds of employees he's got 60 aircraft um and he's moved his operation to Sharjah um which is a very sort of conservative emirate uh, it's a twist emirates right uh but it has what's called a free trade zone uh so on, on top of all his other shit he's also not paying uh, import export taxes um so he's based there, which seems to allow him to operate pretty much without him. He's moving a ton of small arms from Ukraine. So at the end of the Soviet Union, Ukraine makes a big thing of being like, we're returning our nuclear weapons, right? People will be familiar with this. Like they don't want their nukes anymore. But they also amass just an incredible amount of small arms, right? So that's uh, like guns bombs grenades uh, things like that right machine guns and because a bunch of of the well, small arms are stored in ukraine that becomes like the nexus for the black market um we think that boot is ethnically ukrainian and he certainly seems to have just been shoveling weapons out of ukraine to conflicts in largely if there's a civil war that you know about in africa or one that you don't know about Probably both sides were using his weapons. Like that, that's a that's a fair assumption to make. And by the late nineties, early two thousands, he's selling everywhere um, business to launder money for other legal activities. And he was he was linked to the Gaddafi regime. He was also selling to rebels in Libya. Um, so it, it's a huge operation. He's the go to guy for uh, weapons, right? And he sort of. <laughs> comes they they interpol go after him in 2002 uh like there's a belgian warrant for him but belgium ends up having to drop their case because it's unclear where he lives so they can't be like yeah he's a resident here he's a belgian resident because like now this this guy keeps moving around like he, you it's not clear if you have jurisdiction um central african republic also i think had a warrant out for him but um they haven't i guess been successful uh in, in serving that warrant um in the, in the Belgian, when they dropped their case, they noted that it would be impossible and very time-consuming to prosecute him, uh, which is kind of funny, given that he's doing a lot of crimes. But in, despite this, in 2003, he does this incredible New York Times, like this thousands of words profile interview of the world's largest arms dealer. Uh, it, it's like a relic of another era of journalism. Like they send this writer to like look for Victor Boo to try and find Victor wow. Boo. What year yeah, was this? Two thousand and three. Um, that was a different era. That was completely different. Yeah, yeah. That is. Uh, yeah, it's a shame. You look at. I look. I looked at it, and I just couldn't help. This, but they just let this person expense a shit ton of flights. Wow, like this. Mm-hmm. This doesn't happen anymore. Um, such a shame. I would love to go to a Russian nightclub and drink carrot juice with arms dealers. Uh, but On the job. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> that to the New York Times. 
and yeah, in the piece, he drinks carrot juice. He uh, he's vegetarian. Uh, he calls himself a scapegoat uh, and a family man. Uh, he, he's <laughs> what a hero. Yeah, everyday Joe trying to sell some Kalashnikovs to people who are doing genocide. Um, he so is. This, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, is this interview how we know? a lot about him yes that and his uh he, this man loves a hand the home video right you're taping this international crime spree the best idea we ever had yeah. <laughs> a quirky little dude uh, but he's not doing crimes in his videos he just looks like uh like ah uh, guy from the office who is just like the most mundane dude in ill-fitting suit he just looks like a salary man who drives like a, a regular car and, and on the weekends likes to like go to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch sports events. Uh, like he or to slide with his like white ass body and pot belly at one point in one of these home videos. And like, yeah, he just, yeah, he just strikes you as the most boring family guy. Like he's not, he, he seems to be like drugs uh, at one point. Like it, it's, fascinating and bizarre um I mean, i'm assuming he has children if he's a family man i think he does have children he certainly has a wife his wife is out there uh his wife is pretty vocal about let let my man go right uh, right, right right yeah so uh, i'm pretty sure he does have children yeah probably more than we know about but maybe not maybe he's a wife guy I, I th well i just think it's funny in these home videos like he's yeah yeah no one yeah. else, no family members. It's just no. him on a slide. Or yeah, 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 yeah. That would be pretty. Uh, yeah, that would be pretty, uh, pretty entertaining. So, two thousand three. Right? It, it's the uh, the article clearly has these two thousand. Like it's named after a George Bernard Shaw play called Arms and the Man, uh, and it, it's it's just like epic and meandering and very long. Uh, and he talks about in the article. He's like, look. They're using me as like this is a thing that like the reason they that it's very hard to prosecute Victor Boot is because there are not that many laws against arms dealing. And the reason there are not that many laws against arms dealing is integral to how we do foreign policy. Right? Like we are hosed without people like Victor Boot. And that's like the other side of this coin that yeah we need a nicholas cage bad guy to pin this stuff on and yeah he pretty horrific things or sold weapons to people who did horrific things uh but he what he's doing is not that like abnormal and it's not that always illegal um as we'll see turn into like gross entrapment to arrest this guy uh and he is right that, like, is he really the biggest arms dealer in the world? Or is that, like, Dick Cheney? Or, you know, Lockheed Martin? Or uh, Raytheon? Mm -hmm. uh, like, is he really any more evil than, like, I live in San Diego, right? Or <laughs> most of the companies I just mentioned have offices here. I rode past yeah. one of them today, you know? And, and those people also go on the water slide with their kids. And <laughs> Yeah. He does have a kid. He has a daughter, one daughter or child. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, born in the Emirates, and they're twenty-eight. So, oh, I bet he who knows a, where they are now. Yeah, I bet he's a great dad. Uh, <laughs> I, well, he's been in jail. 
Uh, oh, that's sad. Yeah. He has a wife too. Uh, Ala is his wife. Uh, uh, just she was she's a fair bit younger than him. Um, so also he's really lost weight in jail and he's looking pretty good. Uh, a picture of him, but with a mustache and stuff. Uh, he's really he's having a glow up. Uh, I think in jail. Are you thirsty <laughs> yeah. on an international arms dealer? <laughs> Pretty thirsty for Victor here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at that mustache. Tell me you could say no. Um, one of the things he says in his interview, which is interesting, is if I told you everything I know, I'd get the red hole right here, and then points to the middle of his forehead. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, w- I wonder what he meant poet. by that. Yeah, th- yeah, this guy's a poet. Yeah, he has a way with words. Yeah, and abs- yeah, he's got some of these great one-liners. Um. Which it's people have recently like reinterpreted that to be like, does he know some shit about uh, Putin? Which uh, is to exchange him, uh, or is he just saying that like, like he might possibly have something like signed by someone who's today a senator, right? Like engaging in business with one of his companies or something like that, because that's how this works. Yeah, I don't know. He's rich and powerful. People have probably done business with him, whether they knew it or not. Uh, and he's aware of this. So that article really bounces him up in the sort of world bad guys list, uh, which is when Nick Cage steps in, <laughs> makes a whole, just does a whole vibe about it, but moves the person to Brighton Beach. Um, because I guess American audiences don't know to where Tajikistan is. is. <laughs> yeah, Tajikistan, no less. Uh, if you're looking for a film, uh, The Notorious Mr. Boot 2014, that's the home videos. Uh, Sundance Film Festival Award winner, just uh, depicting his dad bod adventures. I think I think it's worth a fr- Wait, Friday Are you night. serious? It, it was at Sundance? Yeah. It's classic. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure. They, uh, yeah, I can't tell I, if you're I, fucking with me. I know this all the time, and no, I'm, I will believe anything at this point. So no, I crazy to me. I, I fourteen film. Yep, screened at the Sundance Film Festival. Holy shit! Yep, it's a classic. Um, it's got it's got some real scenes. I, I, I seriously like eighty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yep, no, that's not and then bad. if you watch, actually, you get it. There's like some pictures of him like dad dancing with his uh, his partner at the time. It, it's just yeah, it's good stuff. Um, I would recommend it. Uh, and there's pictures of him around lots of weapons, obviously. Your bout boot. Yep, yep. Taurus, Mr. Boot. Yeah, it's a goodie. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it, it's very, very bizarre. This guy is just a quirky little dude. Like, what yeah. is... <laughs> what a little dork. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Does war yeah. crimes is a quirky yeah. little dude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a picture of him pretending no, to throw No, but I, you know what I mean. It's not like... <laughs> he's just... I don't uh-huh. know. Uh-huh. Do you expect him to be like evil and I don't know smoking in a dark room all the time? No, this is how they get away with it. Yep, yeah, like you would see this guy, right? Like you go to the lounge, uh, like my life. It lounges in like small airports in in like I don't know Middle East, Africa, whatever, trying to fly cheap. You would see this dude in the lounge, and you wouldn't be like, "Oh, there goes an international arms dealer." You'd be like, yeah, "That man is in." Uh, conductors or you know he, yeah he and that works tires. in his favor yeah yeah like he's not he's not the joker um mm-hmm. uh, and no he he is a joker though you can see him having some good old japes in in this film 
Ha- okay. Ha- highly Nick, when, when Nicolas Cage plays him, he doesn't even have a mustache. I uh, know that's disappointing, wow. isn't it? Because that is his trademark feature. Wow. Oh, okay, okay. So technically, the character Nicolas Cage plays is a fictional illegal arms dealer. Yeah, that's correct. Based on the stories of Victor Bout and other real life arms dealers and smugglers. Uh, okay. I see. They okay. want to play it both ways. <gasps> yeah. So I've just got to bit in the trailer where he's just like eye contact with the camera, hip thrusting, and it's. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you for that description. <laughs> that's James. all right. That's uh, all right, guys. Uh, cutting edge of journalism here. <laughs> yes, that's right. All right. So we should return to uh, to the narrative and not my description of um, of Victor Beat at dancing. So um, his arrest is kind of fascinating. And again, like his arrest is one of those things where you're like, oh, this is terrible, and then you realize that again we do this shit all the time right um so to understand his arrest you've got to first understand this guy andrew smulian uh former he's british he's born in britain but he's a south african air force officer uh then he goes into commercial flying but at some point he's turned by their intelligence delivering shipments of stuff and then doing a little bit spying on the side Spying uh, on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's smooth. Who, who's among us hasn't found themselves doing a little side spying hustles. on the side? Yeah, everyone has their side hustles. Better side spying for the doing it in the apartheid era, but probably we're certainly in their military in the apartheid era. Yikes! Yeah, Smooly is not not a man with morals. I don't think, uh, as we'll find out. So uh, Smoolian uh, has fallen on hard times by two thousand and is working in a hypodermic syringe factory in Tanzania. And that's just a fact that I found without context and I haven't felt any need to research further. Um, and at that point, Smoley is contacted by FARC generals, right? Um, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, FARC, right? A left-wing Marxist guerrilla group that have been fighting in the jungles for, I think they're one of the world's longest insurgencies for decades. Um, these FARC generals are like, hey, Smulian, come and meet us in a tiki bar in Curacao uh, and we will have a chat. Uh, Smulian, right, he wants to get out the syringe factory, so he's all about <laughs> it. He hops on the plane and... Uh, they meet in a tiki bar, right? Which is obviously a good place to do an arms deal. Um, Very, I mean, movies are right about that. <laughs> stuff going down in tiki bars. Yep, that's uh, that's the one thing that was in fact cinematic universe of Victor Boot. So um, they're in the t- tiki bar, right? Now, it should be noted that these two FARC generals, shockingly, are not really FARC generals. Uh, they are DEA assets. Um, in fact, they have been Officers in the Colombian Armed Forces, uh, but they've decided to pivot to a career in selling cocaine. And in that career pivot, they've unfortunately come into contact with the DEA, which is generally oh, not good. Shit. Yeah, right. They're just trying to sell cocaine and do do their thing. Yeah, yeah. They're just vibing and killing indigenous people. Probably they they have a pretty rough record in the Colombian military. It's fair to say. Oh, yikes. Uh, so the DEA sees them and is like, "Yep, yeah, those are our people." Uh, and Gives them a ton of money, citizenship, families, I believe, and turns them, right? Asks them to pretend to be FARC generals, which they're like, yep. Can you can you spell the word you're saying? What is the... FARC? Is that word? Yeah. 
F-A-R-C, Fuerzas Armadas Revolución. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, like, sorry, F, yeah, F-A-R-C, fuck. Uh, I might have got the act. I am, I am someone that d- does not know what that is, so. No. Honest about that. <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I, there's no reason to, unless you're you know, a global conflict understander slash dork. <laughs> uh, uh, they're very nice people, some of them, actually. Um, they've started a microbrewery now. Um, yeah, they, they have a microbrewery. I don't believe anything you say. Uh, fucking, I will send you a story. I'm like scarred by Robert. He, <laughs> yeah, he just no, tells me all these crazy things uh, that are not true and I believe. <laughs> I'm not like Robert. I'm a man of the truth. I'm going to, I will drop it in the chat. Like, um, yeah, they, they definitely have started a microbrewery. Uh, <laughs> these are such weird little doofs. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Okay. The, the, actually, the person who runs a microbrewery is a woman. Uh, uh, oh, good! Good for her. We yeah. love feminism. We, we love a girl boss yeah, yeah. on the yeah. show. <laughs> yeah, girl boss. The fact we're very committed to gender equality. They had women there in their uh, in their military. Uh, oh. Yeah, we'll do an episode. Uh, Robert and I want to go to their microbrewery. It's, it's one of our Sh- goals. Why not? Sure. Yeah, yeah, we've we've got this far. No one's called us out. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, interestingly, the. U.S. government had just done exactly the same thing to Monzer Al-Qasr, who's a Syrian arms dealer. Uh, they'd done the same, we're two FARC generals, we would like to buy these weapons. And in the discussion, the quote FARC generals are like, we would like to buy these weapons to kill Yankees. We want to kill Americans. It would be great to have this gun with a sniper scope so we could see if they're American before we shoot them. Uh, just like... <laughs> This is where this is where we get to like the entrapment, right? And the Swedish like, yeah, whatever, bro. Like, you want guns? I know a guy. Uh, and they're like, to kill the Americans, so? And he's like, yeah, oh. dude, whatever you need. Okay, it's getting weird. Um, but then Smulian, that uh, he is, goes, okay. So my guy is Victor Boot. V I K T O R B O U T. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, which that is uh, that is a poor move on Smulian's part. Um, so Smoody drops him in, organize a meeting, right? The two generals, quote unquote generals, and Victor in a hotel in Bangkok. Uh, and that is where uh, the, the, the Victor Boot story sort of ends, at least the free Victor Boot. So they go through the deal. And again, he's being like, I, I can't believe he conducted his whole life like this because his, his degree of concern with security is minimal. Like he'll be like, you guys are getting like 5,000 AK, also some surface to air missiles and like writing it on the hotel notepad. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah. Like normally this isn't the, like the DEA rolled a, uh, a, y- a Yakuza arms dealer recently and they had to explain he was talking about cake and ice cream. He meant like surface to air missiles. Wow. Um, Sa- same for me, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna head down to the uh, to the cake shop. Uh, it, it, that guy fucked up by sending a selfie of him weapon to the. Jesus agent. Christ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, th- it's good. It's a good picture. This, I'll send you that picture because he does look like an international supervillain. Um, okay. Yeah. He, he has blue aviators. I think like. Oh my God! Uh, yeah. Some people know they're playing the part. You know what I mean? Yeah, you got to lean yeah. in. Um, yeah. He leans in. Uh, but so Bout is in this in this room, right? He's negotiating with his two Colombian friends, 
and uh, in come the Thai police, right? Uh, the way the DEA say it, they're like, and he put his hands in a bag and we all pointed our guns at him and we're like, Victor, no, it's, it's over. And, uh, and like, they thought he was going to pull a gun on them. But like in the video, he kind of is just like, oh, oh. <laughs> and then he, I think he says the game is up. He has some like Bond villain, like line. Wow. Where, uh, of course. He's, like, he's a poet. What did I say? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Flowery. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's flowery why they're, words. Le they're letting him out for his contribution to art. Mm -hmm. I, I do want, if there's ever like, in a, he was a poet, Shireen, just to like, just <laughs> yeah. like a Hey, I, I, yeah. yes, quote. <laughs> Acclaimed podcaster. This <laughs> is Red Dot on, to describe a gunshot, come on. On his gravestone, he was a poet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Nothing just, else. Yeah, Nothing just Victor Booth, <laughs> poet. Had no yeah. other gigs I was aware of. Yeah, yeah. Water slide enthusiast. Um, so... They arrest him, right? Uh, they hold him in time. Fights the extradition. He's like, I'm just a businessman. I don't know what you're talking about. I just want to sell you cake and ice cream or whatever. Uh, uh, and eventually they bring him back to the United States. They try him in this federal jurisdiction in New York where they try nearly every terrorism case like this, right? Like um, the recent 09A case was in the same uh, jurisdiction. So like it, that it, makes sense. Yeah, they always do it in New York. Uh, I think that his trial was like September or October. Uh, in the uh, like, you know, you're, you're trying someone like seven years after 9-11, six years after 9-11 in New York around the anniversary of what happened of 9-11. Of right. So people are pretty. Uh, and then you're like, and this dude sold weapons to the top. He moved gold out of Afghanistan for Al Qaeda and. So he's pretty screwed. Um, cancel, cancel culture strikes again. <laughs> yeah. The woke mob came for Victor. Um, his wife says outside the court, which I thought was interesting, they're trying Nicolas Cage, not my husband. Oh, shit. That's, yeah. that's actually a really interesting statement in terms of yeah. like media perceptions of people. No. Yeah. That. Yeah, they do not go after this guy until... And then Victor, and then uh, what's it called? The Nicolas Cage movie, Lord of War. Uh, yeah. And then you can't separate. I don't think the like. Look, he he's a piece of shit. But the, I mean, like he did make a movie about himself, though. Right? Well, he did. Else got that? They released that in 2014, like seven years after he'd gone down. Oh, okay. I didn't look at the date. The uh, yeah, yeah. Oh no, no sorry. I, I was like, <laughs> I, I, that's why I was completely different up until just this second. Ah, uh, uh, yes. No, my no. mistake <laughs> no that's outstanding the, the sundance film seven years later the yeah. notorious uh victor boot it yeah. would have been amazing 80, if he'd made that himself. On Rotten tomatoes yeah mm. get that up with yeah. our listenership we could get it up to the 90s i reckon <laughs> and uh, give it the thumbs up uh so i think they probably did right like in in organizations like the DEA and these big federal uh law enforcement agencies there are a lot of people who want top jobs and I think one of the ways to advance is getting one of these. Right? I, I have very little federal law enforcement understanding, but it, it strikes me that they kind of they had the DEA agent in charge of his arrest on uh, ABC, I think, or on 60 Minutes or something. Uh, the guy talks about himself in point on there. It's a bit weird. Uh, Ugh. One of those. <laughs> <but he's, laughs> 
it it's clearly like a, a career defining thing right and I, I really don't think it would have been if like no one made a film about Montreal Casa right he was selling mm-hmm. a lot of weapons to you know they did entrap him in the same way actually but it's it's not such a big thing um so boot goes to jail uh he's been in jail about 12 years now and now the Biden administration seems to or at least know that he's like worth offering and they offered him in trade for snowden apparently uh yeah and russia didn't take that um i think it's probably uh they, they see more value in snowden but the yeah, they, they seem to have offered him again in, the, in this Bra- uh, Griner-Wheelan trade. Uh, it's still unclear if Russia will accept him or not. Like we said before, it's a very weird practice to be like, like Pokemon cards. Yeah, or like literally like the NBA, like the, the thing that <laughs> yeah. Brady Greider works for. It's like you're literally creating like a fantasy team or whatever the shit of, of prisoners and or people that you want, like hostages. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to see like Russia kind of just like, I don't know if they sort of want to be like, look how much we owned you. Like we made you trade the world's most notorious arms dealer for a basketball player. Uh, like if they kind of, obs- uh, I don't know, the ridiculousness of what they've done is somehow a win for them. Uh, or if Russia wants him back because he has some kind of intel that they're afraid of. like. I'm not sure if that's the case. He lived in Moscow for a while. I didn't know how close he was to the Russian state. I'm sure he knows some stuff. It's almost there's not much of a state in the world that he doesn't have something on, right? So it's possible. And I guess he's kind of served his purpose, which was this like, you know, we can find you anywhere, we can come after you anywhere, um, we can arrest you. Uh and I don't want to be like like pro arms dealer uh on on the podcast but like on the podcast james is completely different but on mic james is gonna say that yeah yeah we're not not technically pro arms dealing yeah this is not not a pro arms dealing podcast technically Um, yeah that would be a good place for an ad pivot wouldn't it but do you know yeah. who is pro arms dealer? Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> I, I, based on, I, I don't know how long we have left, so an, yeah, an ad yeah, may not I, make the, sense here. But yeah. we can leave the joke in to yep. prove that we're funny. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that we exactly. sometimes think they about have to ad know. pivots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're considerate and funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and kind, and uh, and not pro arms dealer. And More, most importantly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Victor is uh, in prison. He's been in prison for about twelve years. Uh, he's got he got 25 years. The judge, you've not proved he was going to do any crimes other than the ones you kind of talked him into. Mm. Like, like a f- a fair. Yeah. Yeah. Woke judge. Um, <laughs> so, so, because, like, again, when they're meeting him, they're like, we want to kill America. Sure, the scopes are high enough magnification so we can see they're Americans. Like, there's some specific dialogue about the sniper scopes to like mm. to to ensure, and they're, they're trying to get surface-to-air missiles as well, right? And surface-to-air missiles are one of the harder things to acquire in the international arms market. Um, mm. So he he's going to supply those, and they claim they're going to shoot down American airliners, um, do a terrorism. Yeah, that'll definitely get them mad. Yeah, yeah. that that'll get them. well, but he only says that because the two DEA plants Z- they ask talk- him for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
don't think the dude would have batted an eyelid either way. I, I mean, typical Fed behavior, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they walked in there in their cool uh, flannel shirts, and he did. Hey, who's excited? Want to do a crime? Let me escalate the level of crime. Uh, so he's in prison. They've offered to trade him. Uh, it remains to be seen. Like. I don't know how relevant he will be if he comes out. It's interesting. Like the area I'm most familiar with um, the books, firearms transactions uh, is in Myanmar, right? Uh, Robert and I have spent some time writing about that. And the price of weapons going, small arms going to rebels in Myanmar is insane right now. Like it. And uh, so maybe taking him out has changed that market a bit. I don't know. You'd think someone would have stepped in to fill that gap in the time that he'd been out of the game. Uh, you'd think, especially after the giant clusterfuck of leaving Afghanistan, by the we'd have dumped a lot more weapons onto the market. So what you're saying is there's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get your resume ready, listeners. Uh, yeah, you know, learn those languages. That's what I'm saying. Go to yeah. these... Learn a leg up on the other applicants. Yeah, yeah. Learn Sanskrit, put it on your resume. No one will call you on it. It'll be fine. It's okay to lie about Sanskrit unless you're, uh, I guess, going to theological college. Um, but yeah, he's learned Sanskrit. He's learned a bunch of other languages in prison. He's probably writing poems in there, right? Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. 100%. He's probably dropping a book is what he'll do. He'll come out, he'll drop a book. Honestly, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised by that if that was true. I, w- I like- would read a book written by one of the world's most famous international arms dealers. Yeah, and poets. <laughs> And uh, that's right, add poets. Yeah. Hey, based on what the quotes are that he's given so far, I'm sure he has really good writing. So, yep. Who knows? That's no all one knows. I'll say. We don't know how much money he has. No one seems he's done a good job of hiding it. Uh, we don't know what the state of his business is. It seems like he has just kind of pieced out, hung out in jail, and. Maybe now we'll be going back to Russia to live in his dacha and just write slides all day. Mm. We can dream. It we feels sure like can. If they, yeah, if they offered him for Snowden already, and now they're offering him again, like are is either the only like quote unquote good Rus- Russian hostage, like worth worthy Russian hostage, or they? In my head, I feel like they're trying to make a big statement, like. Brittany Griner is so important to us. Keep this man. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I hope, I mean, look, what's happening to her is disgusting, right? And every day she spends oh, 100, jail yeah, fucking yeah. abhorrent. Uh, and so, like, yeah, you hope that, that they... I think, yeah, I think he's... He, there's no real... I don't know. It doesn't really serve the interests of the state to keep him in prison, right? Like, the big win was getting him there, and that... I think showed people doing what he does that like the US will come after you. Um, and so like that really, I think 12 years is, is a long enough time, you know, like, uh, so I, I don't know. I, I don't understand the motivations of world leaders, but hopefully uh, we get some updates. I don't know. Hopefully Britley Griner doesn't have to longer in a, what I'm sure is a pretty terrible Russian prison for having a vape pen because that is bollocks. Uh, and I just want to say before we finish up here that we are indebted to our friend Matt, uh, who is at, uh, I think, Enjoy it on Twitter or Raccoon Liberation Front. 
Black Flag Enjoyer is Matt's handle. Uh, Matt actually came on to help us do an interview with this. Uh, Matt has worked in a lot of these places, not as an arms dealer, I should add, uh, but doing some like uh, civil engineering. Uh, and even thinks that uh, he ran into Victor Boot in a bar in Somaliland once. And because of what we discussed, you would not know that this dude was an arms dealer. Uh, unfortunately, Matt's audio was unrecoverable. Uh, and um, much debt for his help. And you should follow him on Twitter if you want to. Uh, anything else we should plug Shireen Garrison no No, I think I think that does it for us today so just google Victor Boot Pub yeah enjoy your weekend Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER me Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful Beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. 
Oh, hi, this is, this is, it could happen here. It's this, this isn't my episode. This is actually Chris. Um, but I guess, I guess we're starting. Uh, uh, Chris, how you doing today? You know, I'm running on very little sleep and a lot of bubble tea. And by, by bubble tea, I mean canned bubble tea. This is the good shit. This is the, really? This is the, this, yeah. Really? Well, I mean, it, in, in terms of it being bubble tea, it's kind of okay. In terms of it being a, like a thing that has more sugar than like any human should ever consume <laughs> and functions as an energy drink while tasting good. It's good shit. See, that's why I live. That's why I live that bang life, baby. We would not. We would not get any yeah. of my scripted episodes done without bang. Bang. Yeah, I drink rip it. Oh god, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> <sighs> so speaking of colonialism, actually, I I don't have a colonialism tie into this. Uh, but what I do have is a bunch of people attacking a children's hospital. So, on August cool. 30th, 2022, police in Boston were called to investigate a bomb threat against Boston Hospital. As parents waited outside in abject terror for their children, who were still trapped in the building, police bomb squads swept the building for hours. This time, there was no bomb. Next time, we might not be so lucky. Welcome to the next day, trans people. So, okay, how, how did we get to right-wingers calling in bomb threats to a children's hospital, a thing that I feel like I need to make a carve-out at the beginning of this episode to talk about how absolutely absurd it is that people are sending death threats to a children's hospital? It's a children's hospital. They take care. They do health care for children. Like, what? <sighs> so the, the answer to, to why is this happening is basically the rights new media strategy of it all once again is chaya rachik who is better known as libs of tiktok and yeah libs of tiktok friend, friend yeah enemy of the pod Re- recurring character on the yeah. pod uh, yeah yeah, yeah. She, she's, she's, like kind of, she's kind of displaced she's kind of displaced done that much lately as, no, as, as yeah. like the recurring pod like person her and uh her, her and matt Wanting to oh, don't worry. He's bigger, coming. Car- bigger no, character. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. The, 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 the walls. Oh, the walls yeah. will appear. <laughs> and the Washington Post editorial page. That one always. Oh God. You know, I, I, I could, I could write, I could write like all of my episodes about the Washington Post editorial page. So I don't do it, and I instead talk about this fucking Twitter account, which was. And, you know, okay, last scene, sicking rabid mobs of reactionaries on teachers, schools, drag queens, and random children on the internet for the crime of uh, being queer or supporting queer kids in any way. Yeah. um, Not the last time we're going to talk about her unless, like, miraculously she's destroyed in the next, like, three days. But what we're going to do here is sort of take a deep dive into how our media strategy works and how sort of like the broader right-wing media sphere uses and, and launders Rachek's talking point pseudo pseudo intellectual babble stuff to sell to a wider audience and the strategy like functionally is not is like it's literally the same thing alex jones does it's like okay so you you misread a headline right or someone puts a video in front of you that you haven't watched you lie about what it says and then you inv- you like invent basically some incredibly dramatic story about what it says, and then you get a bunch of other people in the right wing media sphere to like back you up for it. And then when inevitably someone's like, "Hey, you're wrong," you claim you're being censored. Yeah, the- but but I don't I don't mischaracterize anything. I just 
post people's own videos that that they that they themselves post, and then also con- then also just call them a pedophile for yeah, saying that they wear pronoun pins. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so on on August 11th, Lives a TikTok posted a tweet that said, "Quote: Boston Children's Hospital at Boston Children's is now offering quote gender affirming hysterectomies for young girls." And there, so there, there, there's there's a video attached young, to this, right? Y- the video quote, young girls. Video does not say anything about this, right? The video is literally just an explanation of what a hysterectomy is, and. You know, but but this this like goes viral. Like literally three hours later, Matt Walsh, a man who once said on video, "and I hate my kids' consent all the time," I uh, tweeted, "quote <laughs> He said that. That's all in video. I I, I am yeah, not yeah, selectively yeah, editing this. He just said that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he uh, he he tweeted." Uh, effort to fight back against the drugging and mutilation of children. There should be rallies outside of the hospitals that butcher children. There should be marches on Washington with hundreds of thousands of people. I will try to get this ball rolling. So, yeah, he's he's been increasingly trying to do like this moral like superiority war and be like, I, of course we should hate. I'm not a morally compromised degenerate. And that, that's kind of the style of talking points that he's trying to mainstream. He's yeah. a popular guest on Fox News. He made the, he made the uh, infamous anti-trans documentary, uh, What is a Woman, earlier this year. We'll talk about it at some point. Yeah, uh, it But he's, 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 he's trying to present himself as like an authority figure in the war against trans people. He's, his work's been boosted by J.K. Rowling. He describes himself as a theocratic fascist, kind of jokingly, just yeah, completely the, accurate. There, there's no substantive difference between what he believes and like what the fucking people believe. So like... No, or the yeah, or, yeah, yeah. like he's wanting to organize rallies outside of like trans health clinics to like destroy trans research. What does... Huh? Yeah, I wa- yeah where have we <laughs> seen this happen. <laughs> <laughs> Never happened in human history before. Any, anyway, yeah. uh, continue. Chris. Yeah, so Sorry. Walsh, yeah. Walsh. I, I also want to mention this. Okay, so as bad as was a woman is, he made an even. He's actually created something even worse than this, which is like maybe history's most dog shit children's book. I uh, oh, uh, yes. Johnny the Walrus, uh, which is uh, like just unbelievably transphobic piece of shit thing that he made. That, like I don't think a single child has ever read willingly. The Daily Wire's kind of push to like uh children's media creation has been kind of wacky it's awful like i it's it's i don't know these people like they just they they're all hacks but the problem is if you want to make a children's book thing like you actually have to like make something but you have to make something that like a child will Oh, literally just like no, a Facebook you, you don't. You don't need to. You have to sell it to parents. Well, yeah, that's sure, the thing, right? There's, there's, it's there's, not about the actual between... kid; it's about yeah, the parents. There, no, like the actual children will be extremely unhappy about this. Yes, but like yes. you know, okay, yeah, you can, you can, you can, you you can sell pictures of a walrus to to, to your like forty year old mothers who yeah. are scared that their kid is wearing dresses or you know yeah. whatever. So, all right, so so. Uh, Matt Walsh, uh, the kids' consent man, uh, is on. Uh, goes on by by August fifteenth. Matt Walsh is on his show, which is called the Matt Walsh Show. Which is the thing. Oh, all of these people, great title. All of these people. Yeah. The name of their show is just their name, and it's like. Yeah. Really? That's why this. That, that's why this show is called the Robert Evans Show. It's true. Mm-hmm. Why? In which Robert Evans occasionally appears on. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so you gotta hand it to tim pool he made the tim cast he showed some uh Uh some real initiative there look this this is this is the kind of innovation that only the only the right and only entrepreneurship can bring us they changed the, the title by three words. No, I mean, I still remember like a decade ago when Matt Walsh was like a niche but growing figure in like the evangelical influencer community. It's like a younger evangelical kid kind of interested in what Matt Walsh was doing because he was like kind of like a hipster and trying like doing like more like modern spins on some on some more kind of classic evangel- evangelical topics. And then as I was getting evangelical christianity walsh was like was getting way more radical in kind of in line with like you know the lead up to trump um and then he just went fully off the deep end and even even as like in in my in me stages of being christian we're like oh this walsh guy is like kind of nuts he's like he is like going in some weird directions he used to be kind of more like a moderate evangelical still very conservative but like used to kind of be the cool kid on the block in the sphere. And then we were like, oh, no, he is like, he's doing some weird shit. <laughs> yeah, and, and that weird shit. So, like, okay, so he goes on his show and he starts screaming about how uh, pub- puberty blockers are chemical tra- uh, castration. Yes, yes, Which is yes. like, this is objectively not true. Like, people like Matt Richick will argue that, like, it's the same drug, and, like, yeah, you can use fertilizer to make a car bomb, that doesn't mean that gardening is terrorism. Yes, as, <laughs> like, as you, if, if, as long as you are taking it, it make you not able to reproduce as you are taking it, then when you stop taking it, you can, re- yeah. can reproduce again. Also, it's yeah. kind of concerning how much they're, they're worried about 12-year-olds not being able to reproduce. Uh, temporarily, Look, Matt, Matt I mean, Walsh. Repeat, Matt Walsh. I, I, I let, me, let, me, let, me go back, let me go back and read this exact quote. It is. I don't, I don't want this to be taken. Uh, I, I, I don't want him to argue that I'm quoting him. Uh, I violate my kids' consent all the time. Oh man, no. I, he, he claims that forcing his kids to clean their room, but we'll. That is some interesting word choices. Uh, you know, okay. And uh, and uh, and obviously for like the pu- the puberty puberty blocker thing, we've talked about this on the show before. They're trying to frame this as like if you take if your kid gets on puberty block, permanently sterile, which just isn't true. That that's yeah, just false. It's like just that, a lie. that that is that is not that's not how these drugs work. Um, this they also claim that these drugs are uh, are like fatal. They're like it, it, look, with people who took this drug, this ma- this massive percentage of them and. Um, as they were on it, and this is because the drugs also used to treat terminal illnesses. So the it's like for like a specific like heart condition or like or I think I think it's I think it's some sort of heart condition thing. Um, so people like old people who are on the drug will because of their because of their like condition that drug is treating them for. So they try to use that false statistic to then make it be like, like kids are dying on this puberty blocker, which is, is again, is not true. It's, it's all blatantly false things. Yeah. We're, um, we're going to get into more of the bullshit they get into in a second. Great. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a time. Yeah. He's, he's doing it. They've, they've really, they've really started leaning into this one is screaming about like hospitals, mutilating children because you know, this is, it's an incredibly sort of lurid image uh-huh. and it's like, okay, so he's right. just like, literally what he's describing is just a hysterectomy, right? Which is like a thing that is just a regular that also, and I cannot emphasize this enough. No one under 18 is getting a hysterectomy. Not really. I mean, there is, again, I think a few, a few places have specific conditions for people who are over the age of medical 
state that they're in, like for instance, Oregon's medical consent for most things is a, a 16 years old. Um, there's certain conditions for like 17 year olds usually to start the process if they want that down you can the get, line. You can get consult. Like, so the, the, yeah. The, yeah, the, the thing at Boston yeah. Children's Hospital they're they all screaming about is there's a thing that says 17 on a document talking about this and what they mean is that you can start consultations when you're 17, but in Boston, like this hospital has never... They've never done this. This isn't a thing yeah, that happens. Yeah. Like, to a 17-year-old. They're not they're doing top do surgery on like 15 year olds that that just like that just yeah that happens um there's possibly been like uh like a, like literally a couple like literally like th- like one to three extremely rare incidents that uh patients doctors uh therapists uh, medical professionals have have done things to to help treat very severe gender uh, dysphoria, but that is only extremely few instances because all of these surgeries and all these treatments are so medically gate like gate kept. Like I, yeah. I've been trying to get top surgery, and they are an adult and they've been doing this process, and it like it takes years. Like yeah, it's, like it's, there, it like, is, there is so it's so challenging. Yeah, like there there is an entire of gender bureaucrats whose like entire job is you have to like like you have to convince these people that your gender is real and it yeah yeah the gender and you're allowed to do suck. things you're yeah. allowed to sign off on things happening to your body yeah <laughs> yeah like i okay uh, you know okay the, the product of all of this bullshit is like you know all the surgery back they're coming for your kids shit succession this like absolute obsession with making sure that people with uteruses can like you can force them to have kids later down the line. Yeah, the product of this is Matt. Matt starts yelling about how this needs to be stopped, and then like coyly suggests maybe we should start with Boston Children's Hospital. Um, like that same day, Boston Children's Hospital is deluged with death threats. Now, Media Matters goes after him, and Matt Walsh makes a bunch of tweets about how he's been. T- context and the death threats aren't his fault but like you know okay the context uh-huh. is him yelling well somebody rid us of this meddlesome children's hospital over and over again so i, I think matt walsh <laughs> doth protest too much and you know even as the sort of like the, the threats mount right like this fake story all over the conservative like ecosystem like wildfire like Bar- bright bart has an article up about it like on day one like within a few hours of like uh right check making this like fake tweet um within within a week it's on gateway daily caller it's on the blaze it's on the daily wire it's on fox news it's, it's you know it's hit the entire ecosystem um the problem okay like try right check like very quickly realizes this is going uh, viral she just keeps tweeting about it keeps tweeting about it keeps tweeting about it but she has this problem which is that everything she's saying is an incredibly easily demonstrable lie and so she keeps having to like try to yell at like fact checkers and like regular people who are going like this is just bullshit and like, like the hospital itself has to issue a statement being like, hey, we don't actually have to change their website to make it clear that 17 year olds don't actually get the surgeries. You can just and get the nobody ever about it. has like they've yeah, never no done this. Just, like this. And, well, you know, and th- th- this is this is kind of a problem for the propaganda wing, because like Chaya Rychek is like a fucking hack. Isn't going to convince anyone who like isn't already convinced that like trans people are evil and that like, you know, OK, at, at, at this point, I, I think. And earlier in 2021 and 2022, I think she may have been able to craft propaganda, which convinces people. At this point, it's gone so much further. Her radius is gonna is gonna is gonna severely grow in terms of 
people who are like, you know, if someone's fine with trans people, I don't think they're going to look at her page and suddenly be like, oh, these trans people seem like they're bad, actually. No, she 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 doesn't have she doesn't have like the she doesn't have the sort of like advertising ability to do this. But do you know who does have the advertising ability to sell you things? Is it our lovely our our lovely and very very trans friendly sponsors? Every single one of them. Chevron. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 what, what what other sponsors do we have? I have no idea. Uh, Washington State I, Patrol. I, Washington yeah. State Patrol. That's right. Blue Washington Apron. State Highway Patrol. Blue Apron. Well, we can't. We can't say that. Yeah. We got. Yeah. Yeah. We got. Yeah. Of a fatherly archetypal deity. That's right. All of these mm-hmm. people uh, will love and accept you for being trans, and then offer you a job at a defense contractor. Um, yeah. Anyway, here's, here's <laughs> so you can ads. post about it. <laughs> All right. So we're 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 back. Uh, we, we 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 reveal the. Pro- Try right check is that she's a hack and she can't convince anyone who doesn't convince. And and this is where a bunch of people who are not actually any smarter than Try right check, but like can write more fancy swing into gear. Yeah. Um, and I'm 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 gonna walk through some of the arguments they're using so you can like even the quote unquote more research shit is once you actually look at the stuff they're citing in these like very official looking threads. So, for example, on, on August 17th, Wesley Yang, who is a, a hack pundit who, I, admittedly, I must applaud him for doing more in his lifetime to combat the stereotype that than any other person ever born has, <laughs> um, did, did, a, did, did a threat attempting to defend libs of TikTok's, like, you know, thing about Boston Children's Hospital giving out hysterectomies. And, okay, so it starts with him going, all right, all right, so we're, we're, we're going to work through this, right? He's like, okay, gender surgery. Uh-huh. And I wonder like, what that uh, means. Why well, yeah. it, it, it means they gave like three people mastectomies, right? And then they have he's, done. Yeah. yeah. To who? Under what conditions? Like uh, apparently, <laughs> apparently, they, they may actually have given like three people who were like seventeen mastectomies, which is again Sweet. not a hysterectomy. This is a different thing. Okay, and and then and then he goes, well, okay, so hospital, th- there's hospital doc showing that they that they do do genital surgery. He admits that uh, they don't. It's never, never happened. Them. Yeah. Also, yeah. He's I like, the document sure. says they could do it, but they, they never have. Uh, also, but base, base. <laughs> this document that I misread and don't understand the difference between a consultation and getting it a surgery. Oh, a clown and a hack who destroyed his entire brain for money in like 2015. I, I would be interested in seeing. You know, if if they're arguing that seventeen year olds cannot medically consent to surgeries, I are I, on what seventeen year olds can consent to in other in other situations. Well, I mean, the, there's there's two angles for that, right? There is the uh, uh the, there is I, I what what percentage of these people like fucking Tucker Carlson have gone on a show and defended child marriage, and then there's the second question, which is okay. So if these people aren't okay, so if if if, if year old is too young to quote unquote mutilate their bodies uh why are you allowing people why are you allowing these people to be in the lead up to joining the army a place where you will in fact get actually mutilated also ignore the concept of circumcision anyway let's continue (laughs) you know okay yeah it's great so so okay so and then his the last thing that he does he starts ranting about other clinics who've done mastectomies. So like, like okay, let, let, let's let's take this piece by piece. So first of all, again, no trans dude under eighteen is getting like at this hospital. It has never happened. It will never happen. Uh, th- there's anecdotal evidence that suggests that trans women have been able to get bottom surgeries like elsewhere. 
when they were when they were like at like age 17 but but if you, if you chase down the citation the evidence for this is purely anecdotal so there's no actual like evidence that like this happened it's just they found they they, they found several studies all of which are citing with each other and it, the, the beginning one starts with i heard some stories about this so, uh. This is going great. Yeah, um, I love this. On, on, on the mastectomy fronts, like, like, okay, so like, the, so, like, the, some there are some trans men who have got mastectomies, like when they were technically a minor, right? But like, okay, I just want Depen- to say, like, again, like, depending on the age of medical consent in the state, and, uh, and depending and, uh, on what other and other treatment options were available after years of therapy and consultations, yeah. and, and and also we should mention this, like, with mastectomies, cis cis girls get mastectomies like all the yeah, fucking yeah. time. This is like just, oh, this is a happen. regular procedure that like get. We should explain what mastectomies and hysterectomies are for people, and just in case they're not familiar, I think. Yeah. So okay. So hysterectomy basically is the the okay. What what's the simplest way to explain it? Like uh, surgical removal of the uterus, right? Like, yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's it's mostly the so it's the surgical removal of the uterus. There are like some versions of it where you get your ovaries taken out too. Um, yeah, yeah. Mastectomy is like you getting your breast removed, or sometimes it's like size reduction stuff. Yeah, um, it's a it's a fairly common procedure. This happens like all the time. And okay, if if you look at what's happening here, right? So there's no evidence that the kids are getting hysterectomies. So what what Wesley Yang and like is redirect focus on gender affirming mastectomies because again they don't have any evidence. The first thing's happening. And then, because they don't have any evidence, uh, they have to start using conspiracy logic and going like, well, this other thing happens, and other people also did a completely other unrelated thing. And this is evidence that this hospital has secretly been giving these things out, even though you just said, like, three tweets before they've never done one. They've never actually done a hysterectomy. Uh, it, it, it's incredible stuff, right? Like, this, I need to point this out. Like, Wesley Ying, like, the, there was a period of you get an understanding of like people people who weren't around in 2010s to understand like how bad the intellectual scene was like there was a time where this guy was like the like the rising asian american intellectual like star who was like supposed to be like this is the sort of like like great revolutionary like thinker of the new 21st century and here he is doing this bullshit because absolute goddamn clown i hate him yeah okay so but, but moving on to other stuff like but the thing is like this doesn't matter like the fact that everything they're saying is a lie and is bullshit, like doesn't matter to the trans is like they need this sort of like visceral emotional pull of the sort of like they're mutilating children shit, and then the other thing they need is like threads that make it look like what they're saying is true. And this is enough to get a huge part of the sort of conservative base on board. And once, you know, it starts to move, right? The story spreads to to the Donald, which is like the rehosting of the old Arslas, the Donald subreddit that was banned for being like an absolute cesspool of abuse. And they start organizing campaigns to harass people who work at this hospital. And this just gets worse. People like uh, Steve Deese, like start targeting specific doctors and calling them demonic and screaming about like butchers. And so, okay, so by the 18th, we're on like day six or day seven of people like doing this five of people sending death threats to a children's hospital. And finally, a platform does something. Uh, so uh, Facebook bans libs of TikTok for one day. Right. And then they're back Yay. the next day. It, it worked. <laughs> we yeah. did it. So, you know, okay. But they use that time to reflect, right? And to yeah, think about yeah, what they've they, done. Yeah, yeah. Their, their change was we need to post more about this. 
Oh, and yeah. so, you know, we should be like, like the social media companies are never actually going to talk because loser TikTok, especially with Twitter, loser TikTok is good for Twitter in the same way that Trump was. Like, you know, yeah. it, like it, it's presence. It brings traffic. They generate, they, they generate conflict, which is the entire purpose of the yep. Twitter algorithm. They yep. drive av- like advertiser revenue. They get a lot of engagement. There's no reason to ban them. Yeah. And like, and with, with Twitter, especially like they like with Trump gone, right. They, they had to, they had to ban Trump for political reasons because he, you know, tried to overthrow the government. But like, Oop. you know, with Trump Oops. gone, like Twitter, Twitter is like a, a, just a declining like social media. It sure is. And, you know, Man, so, I, I I watched I watched the Donald Trump Pizza Hut commercial yesterday, and I forgot how funny Donald Trump was. Like he's as long as he's playing the character of Donald Trump, he's actually really funny. Uh, then I then I remembered all the fascism parts, and then else anyway. Yeah, yeah, but like you know, okay, so yeah, okay, so like they they. The, the, the way this sort of thing works, right, is that they get all these users and engagement from the right starting, like, a campaign against the Children's Hospital. Then they, they get engagement from the left going after them. They make money no matter who wins. And, like, you know, sometimes they'll ban, like, Trump, right, because, you know, or, or, or they'll do temporary uh, of, of right-wing people because that get, that gives you, like, good liberal media attention. And then, you know, and that 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 that, that gives time for a cycle to sort of build up uh, for the conservatives to all talk about how they're being censored. And then when they return to the platform, they do their whole I was censored arc. Like, we've seen this with Jordan 15 times so with loser tiktok on the 25th they on august 25th they start targeting another children's hospital and this 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 time it was a children's national hospital in washington dc which is like dc's by far largest and most important children's hospital and they bring they bring their website down like the same stuff is happening and twitter finally locks loser tiktok off of their account for a week um, partially what's happening here was like, there's pressure by friend, guest Alejandra Caraballo, who's been doing like a lot of great work, like documenting and like documenting what Lizard TikTok been doing and like sparring with them. And, uh, Chaya Rychik like keeps misgendering her because Chaya is a fucking enormous piece of shit who should be flushed down the where shit belongs. Um, unfortunately, like, uh, well, okay. So, so some of the, some of the like dozens of tweets that, that, uh, uh, Libs of TikTok made about children's hospitals and take it down. A lot of them are still up, and you know probably what's going to like right still banned off Twitter. But like you know what's going to happen is there's going to be like a wave of like good liberal media press, and then there's going to be the next wave of the conservative outrage over censorship and cancel culture stuff, and then she'll be back. In a Substack post, uh, Reichick said, "Quote now more than ever, I need your support." Consider becoming a paid subscriber so I can continue this important work. <laughs> when I get banned permanently, it's only a matter of time. I'll need your help to keep the lights on so I can continue telling the truth. They can't cancel me if you don't let them. Because uh, uh, there it is. Yeah, grift begins. Yeah, I mean, like, like I kind of emphasize enough. Like this has all always been a grift. Like this is like her fourth attempt. Like she's TikTok been trying like her fourth yes. attempt. Yeah, to like she's been trying to become a viral Twitter personality yeah. for years. Yeah, she yeah. just found the one. She finally found something that worked, and that's uh, baiting conservatives into being mad at her. Yeah, or giving them like some kind of excuse for being mad at trans people, right? Like. Yeah, yeah, it's like a self self validation thing. Yeah, yeah, they and want targets, like specific specific. They want specific yeah. targets too. Uh, and like, yeah, I mentioned this. Like, okay, like 
right chick like is an actual human piece of shit like her ideology is bad but like it is the, the stuff that she's doing is mostly about money and, and this is true of like the entire ecosystem right like all of the conservative outlets this is why like matt walsh and is like Dementors. like all of these people spend all, all of their time staring <laughs> at metrics and looking at their fucking viewer data looking at their the anti-trans data the anti-trans documentary is paywalled behind plus yep. the hit new streaming yeah, service I, uh, like I, it, it's like it's funny because like all of these people like rant constantly and th- there's 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 like increasingly anti-semitic versions of it about how like the trans activists the trans lobby are like funded by billionaires like every single uh, one of these people <laughs> paid by fucking george uh, soros presumably well I, the, all, all supposedly we're all getting paid by by george soros uh in reality it's it's the rights all getting paid by uh what am i blanking on the guy's name the the fucking fox guy T- teal no they are, they are now getting paid well, a lot they are, by they are getting Thiel. Thiel, but, uh, but, but why, why yes. am I blanking on the, 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 the guy? The, 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 the fucking media news. guy. Uh, no. no, the, no. no. Murdoch. Murdoch. Yeah, they're, they're all getting Murdoch. paid by Murdoch. They're, all, they're, all, they're also all getting paid by just like their rabid base of like yeah. dealerships and think they're working class because they have a Ford F-150 and like, yeah, it sucks. So um, true. Yeah, they're at uh, about 900,000 subscribers to this daily wire plus to daily like, wire plus the hit new streaming yeah. service that's correct yeah that's why it's a hit uh then they give it such a catchy name um but yeah that's a shit ton of money for someone right pumping out hate uh getting gina caruso to make crappy films that's right uh, yeah that's an amazing career arc uh and yeah she it, she went from Deadpool to Star Wars to Ben Shapiro. She was gonna have her own Star Wars show. Terror <laughs> on the Prairie. No. It's amazing. Like the fucking Hunter Biden. Like that. That's the. Oh god. Like I. Oh, the Hunter Biden trailer. Yeah. Yes. There's this trailer for a, a a film that I forget who's I forget who's who's um making this one. Um, but it's, it's a film about all of Hunter Biden's scandals and Gina, Gina is in it. And man, it looks like if this was directed by a smart person, this could be an amazing comedy. Like this, oh, like yeah. the way the, everything about it is so innately comedic yet they're playing it as a political scandal, but no, it's just. And if it was if it was directed by somebody with any competency, they would have recognized it's a comedy film, and it would be hilarious to watch. But instead, it's going to be boring. Because so. look, look, conservatives are getting good at comedy. The left is worried. <laughs> the left is getting very scared. Like uh, the, the other, the other thing. The moment I knew that Glenn Greenwald had like, like he wasn't just purely grifting, had like actually fallen down the rabbit hole was when he spent like fucking like two years pretending that literally anyone on earth gave a shit about Hunter Biden. And also, he's, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's been simping for, for limbs of TikTok. For oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is uh, all, all, all leading up to his uh, uh, incredibly hardball interview with Alex Jones great oh, great stuff I forgot about incredible that. journalism just oh god i love it here yeah so it, it all sucks and the the, 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 the other the, the, like the other big problem here right is like okay on the one hand like all these people are just doing this to make money but the problem is that and, and i cannot emphasize this enough it is easier to get the materials 
bomb than it is to get gender affirming surgery. And this is a real fucking issue because it turns out when you convince a bunch of people that children's hospitals are mutilating children, what happens? Oh, wait, hold on. I don't even need to go back to the anti-abortion terrorism, the people burning down abortion clinics and murdering healthcare workers. I could just talk about the reaction to uh, like almost immediately after the lockdown started, a guy tried to buy a bomb to blow up a children's hospital and was killed in a shootout with the FBI. Uh, he was killed like a week uh, maybe like a week and a half before another guy tried to derail a train to ram a Navy medical ship. Mm-hmm. There was also the stabby lady, the lady who tried to take all the knives on board the uh, hospital ship. Yeah. Like, it's just like, okay, like, if, if they're allowed to keep doing this shit, like, people are going to die. And this isn't to say, like, they can't be beaten, especially IRL, where the numbers of these people in total are actually pretty small, because, like... The number of people who actually rabidly care about this stuff is like a vanishingly small minority of the U.S. And, you know, in and, and, and IRL, that works for us because these people suck. Everyone hates them. Communities will come out to like to try to communities will come out to confront and defeat them. But this is, you know, the, this is the this is the, the ecosystem, the media ecosystem of the modern right. It works by spreading conspiracy theories, inciting mobs and then claiming they're being censored when everyone tries to stop them. Like, in two to three weeks, when they found another one of these things, I don't know, it'll be like fucking, like, transgender clowns are working well, at Make-A-Wish Foundation or something. Like, we're going to be talking about another instant, another yeah. instance like this uh, in tomorrow's episode. Yeah. Um, it's great. It's it's good. It's not good at all. That, it's, that is, that very is, bad. Yeah. Yeah. If you do want to be mad about forced hysterectomy, uh, that our immigration services has forced hysterectomies on yeah. people in their custody. It's a good thing to be mad about. Yeah, it's 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 a good time on that we have here on this earth. Yeah, don't bomb Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Warning for some pretty intense transphobia and misgendering. 80-year-old Julie Juman was permanently banned from her local YMCA after demanding that a transgender worker leave the women's locker room. Juman said that she was trying to protect little girls from a biological man in a women's swimsuit who was watching them undress. So this week, a few dozen people joined Jaman to protest the YMCA. Some of the protesters, including her, were assaulted by lunatics, men dressed as women. Okay, first of all, that granny rocks. But when pressed, Port Townsend, Washington police said that Mr. J- Mrs. Jamin had an emotional response to a strange male being in the bathroom and helping a young girl take off her bathing suit. Well, I should hope the response to that would be emotional. Yeah, because uh, this, you know, you can just picture this kind of situation where they're grooming little kids uh, completely inappropriately. And you're you're doing the thing that a lot of people want you to do and that a lot of people watching would. But I hope everybody is aware that this, uh, from what I understand, is a pretty wonderful profit for big pharma and medical systems. It's and what's happening to children becomes even more disastrous and and you were protecting the kids you you were protecting the kids i i mean they should have a responsibility to do that the young men's christians association uh should be doing that themselves if they are playing any role in this whatsoever Uh, it's pretty frightening This is It Could Happen Here. I'm Garrison, and today we're talking about a recent flare-up of anti-trans hate and the anti-trans protests and campaigning that's engulfed a small town in northern Washington in what conservatives describe as the culture war front. The past month, far-right media personalities and anti-trans so-called feminists have partnered together to create an international nexus point for the increasing attacks on trans and queer people, resulting in a wave of harassment, death threats, and rallies, including an upcoming anti-trans rally in association with the Proud Boys and Three Percenters, slated for Saturday, September 3rd. 
Port Townsend is a small city of just around 10,000 people, located on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, just north of Seattle. The city has a geographic footprint of just under 10 square miles. Over the course of the past month, the quaint beachside city has become the focus of a disinformation campaign against trans people and transgender inclusivity. But unless you frequent right-wing news outlets, you probably haven't heard anything about this story, let alone are aware of the massive amount of harassment and death threats being targeted at trans people and their allies. Anti-trans and far-right activists have already descended on this small city from all around the country and plan to do so again on September 3rd, with Proud Boys and 3%ers promising to show up. So what actually happened that escalated things to this point? On July 26th, an 80-year-old woman named Julie Jammin was in a pool locker room and began verbally harassing a trans woman who was on the job as an employee of the Olympic Peninsula YMCA. Julie Jammin asked invasive questions about her genitals and later accused her of engaging in inappropriate conduct while continuously misgendering this employee. Both the employee and YMCA officials, and like everyone else present in the locker room, have disputed Julie's highly publicized version of events, which we'll get into in a bit. But first, we're going to hear from the original target of the harassment. A few days ago, I was able to talk with Clementine, a young trans woman, about what happened to her near the end of July while working at the YMCA. It was a pretty normal day. That week, we were doing uh, swimming with the kids. Uh, and me and the other childcare workers, uh, you know, used the locker rooms kind of as expected. And I was using uh, the woman's locker room just because, you know, that works for me. Um, and that lines up with how I feel. We went through all of that, no problems. We got the kid, the kids got changed in their stalls. And then once we were out in the pool, one of the kids needed to use the locker room bathroom. So I took that kid and uh, another kid into the locker room in accordance with the wise uh, rule of three system. To clarify, at the YMCA, there is a, quote, rule of three, where staff always accompany children in a group of three so that a staff person is never alone with a child and children are never alone with each other. As Clementine was standing with a kid outside the restroom stall, waiting on the other kid who was using the bathroom, Julie Jammond was showering nearby in a curtained-off stall across the locker room. I was waiting outside of the bathroom stall with the kid being the buddy, making small talk when uh, Julie Jamon initiated the dialogue by asking if I was a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, I responded, uh, yes, I'm trans. And she asked me if I had a penis. And it kind of caught me off guard um, and I and I told her that, you know, that's none of your business. Um, Julie asserted that I needed to leave and that I can't be there. And then in response to 
her assertion. I just shook my head no. Um, I couldn't really leave or I'd be leaving the kids unattended. And, you know, I was backed into a corner. The kid, uh, at some point, um, the kid using the bathroom uh, exited the stall and had her swimming, uh, her bathing suit, like, wasn't fully pulled up. And she asked me for help. And so I assisted her by pulling it up by its straps. And, you know, there were other patrons present in the locker room at this time. And at some point around the girl coming out and needing her straps pulled up, uh, Julie was back in her uh, shower stall. And then around this time, two more kids entered the locker room. It might be good to mention uh, I have prescribed glasses. Um, I wasn't wearing my glasses and I couldn't see anything, <laughs> which was kind of terrifying because, you know, it was like a shot in the dark. Like I just heard a voice and, and I had to search around before I figured out who was talking to me. But anyways, uh, the kids, two more kids came in to the locker room uh, and they overheard Julie shouting at me and asked me what was going on and like they had this concerned look on their face and and I just kind of told them to leave because I didn't want them to get involved. The kids went to the pool manager Rowan and asked for help with the escalating situation. They went straight to her and asked her to come help and told her that someone was yelling at me and moments later Rowan entered and as she walked by I got her attention And I told her, you know, there's an older lady yelling at me to leave right now. Uh, And I pointed at the shower stall that Julie was using. Rowan kind of like posted up and uh, Rowan stood in between me, the kids and Julie and waited for her to come out. Uh, And then Julie, you know, poked her head back out and said, get out. You're a man. And Rowan, you know, intervened when she sort of like popped back out and said, no, actually, you need to leave Uh, because right now you're discriminating and kind of being a bigot. So it's actually that you need uh, it's actually you that needs to leave right now. And Julie told Rowan she was confused about gender. Uh, And then Julie pointed at me and said, he has a fucking penis. He has no business being around little girls. He has a penis and he could rape someone. And after that, Rowan uh, sort of ushered me and the girls out of the locker room and uh, told me to go to her office. And then the other staff members found me and helped me. Um, And Rowan stood outside the lobby side of the office uh, when I was in there and Um, I guess like, yeah, after the police had been called, Julie came out and engaged with her, uh, and they were yelling, but, uh, I couldn't hear what was going on. And I mean, that's kind of the end of it. I know that Julie left after that and I just kind of checked out for an hour or two. It shocked me. (laughs) I haven't had someone do that to me before. I've never been talked to in in a bathroom or locker room before, especially in that way. 
The YMCA pool manager told Julie Jemin that she needed to leave and suspended her membership for violating the Y's code of conduct, which prohibits, quote, discrimination, hatred, derogatory or unwelcome comments, intimidation, conduct or actions based on an individual's sex, race, ethnicity, age, religion, disability, sexual orientation, or any other legally protected status, unquote as well as having no tolerance for disrespectful words or gestures towards YMCA staff or others. Part of an official statement released by the Olympic Peninsula YMCA, uh, published as the incident in question was growing into a much broader anti-trans spectacle, clarified that Julie has had, quote, several incidents where she has repeatedly violated the Y's code of conduct, specifically using disrespectful words or gestures towards YMCA staff or others, and abusive, harassing, and or obscene language or gestures towards YMCA staff or others. The aquatics manager then informed the patron that she was permanently suspended from Mountain View Pool and all Olympic Peninsula YMCA facilities, unquote. After Julie was banned from the pool, on Monday, August 1st, she started showing up outside the facility with anti-trans signs and led a small group of people into a city council meeting, resulting in an hour of public comment logged about the incident. Here is some of the statement Julie read in the city council meeting, which also gives a look at her version of events at this time. Approach the podium, state your name and where you live for the record. I'm on the Peninsula, and um, I'm here because I had an experience that you need to know. I have sent it to you all in detail. In an effort by the city and the YMCA to apply the neocultural gender rules at Mountain View Pool dressing shower room facilities, women and children are being put at risk. My experience while showering after my swim was hearing a man's voice in the women's dressing area and seeing a man in a women's swimsuit watching little girls pull down their bathing suits in order to use the toilets in the dressing room. I reacted by telling him to leave, and the consequence is that I have been banned from the pool. There is no signage informing women the shower room is now all gender and what that means nor have parents been informed of what they can expect with these new policies. The Y has not provided any dressing shower room options for women who do not want to be exposed to men who identify as women. The YMCA, the city, the police and sheriffs, the parents, the professionals who assist victims of voyeurism, peeping toms, pedophilia and assault need to come together to figure out how to make the new policies work for all pool patrons, not just one group. How to keep children who are less able to discriminate safe. It is ironic that women who discriminate when a situation threatens their safety or their children, a message from our ancestors, are now accused of discrimination as if they have made someone else a victim. We need to do much more intelligent and wise about applying the rules and developing policies that are respectful and inclusive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So just a few notes about that. 
Trans inclusivity at the Y is not some new policy. For years, it's been literally Washington state law that people have the right to access the locker rooms, changing rooms, and bathrooms that align with their gender identity. This has been the case since 2016. The law states, quote, entities shall allow individuals to use the gender-segregated facilities, such as restrooms, locker rooms, dressing rooms, and homeless or emergency shelters that are consistent with that individual's gender expression or gender identity, unquote. And regarding Julie's account of the incident, there have been no complaints from children or parents who are using the pool, and multiple accounts conflict with Julie's telling of the story, as the employee never did help anyone undress, nor was watching anyone change. Throughout this city council meeting, there were several public comments in support of trans rights that pushed back on Julie's outrageous claims and called out the overall trend of misgendering and the groomer-style transphobia. At the end of the meeting, city officials themselves took a stand against the transphobic rhetoric that was present throughout the hour of public comments. Oddly enough for this show, uh, one of the people I interviewed for this episode serves as a Port Townsend city councilwoman. Right. Um, my name's Libby Wenstrom. Um, I'm an elected city councilor for the city of Port Townsend, and I'm speaking today on as myself rather than as a representative of the city or a representative of the city council as a whole. When did you first kind of hear about this thing that's now ballooned into this larger issue with people coming in from out of state to do protests and all this kind of stuff? I think I first heard about it on Sunday night which would have been, I guess, the 31st of July. And I heard about it from um, the YMCA aquatics director, Rowan Mackins. Um, and it was more in the tone of kind of a heads up that this was a thing that was going on. And then I heard a lot more about it the next day, which was Monday, the 1st of August, um, when uh, Julie Jamon showed up at the pool with a whole group of people doing a protest that they were picketing at the pool. And she also submitted a public comment to the city council meeting that night. And at that point, I realized that a group of people, including Julie, was probably going to plan on attending the city council meeting um, and reached out to some friends and acquaintances in the um, trans and allies community, um, Olympic Pride, um, the social justice group and it, at the Unitarian Church here in town and various other people who had been kind of resource and say, hey, this is going on. You need to be aware of it. And in fact, that night, there was over an hour of public comment. There wasn't anything on this council agenda. We, there wasn't a, anything we were discussing. It wasn't really a matter. It wasn't really, I think, even on the city's radar. But uh, 30-ish people showed up at the city council meeting. And normally when there's a public comment about an item that's not on the agenda, they cut off public comment at half an hour, but for whatever reason, let it run that night. So it was well over an hour of public comment. And some of the things said were pretty shocking. And, um, you know, to the, to the tune of that, you know, all transgender people were pedophiles or that, you know, this was a rape happening and some, some statements that were just not true. And then Based on what I heard that night, I was really concerned and felt that this was both, you know, 
this was ballooning out of proportion, which now seems kind of funny given how much more balloon it's out of proportion it's gotten. There's not really any action here for the city or for the pool. I mean, one of the things that um, Julie Jamon has retained legal counsel and sent a demand letter to the city, but her demands were like, well, you should fire people. Well, they don't work for the city. They're YMCA employees. Um, well, you should um, change your policy. Well, the policy is literally state law. And, you know, a bunch of things. So it's just, you can't do this. Um, so it's not really clear why this is all focusing on the city because the city doesn't really have, there's not really any action that the city could take here. On top of the dozens of people Julie led in giving public testimony, which largely consisted of transphobia, misgendering, and baseless accusations that trans people are pedophilic inherently. But that same day, August 1st, she also led a protest outside of the YMCA. To learn more about this, I talked with Cass and Raven, who are both part of a local affinity group. The first protest was August 1st, and they announced that they'd be back the same time on the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. So the 2nd drew a much larger counter-protest, um, and then a lot of the same people who were there on the 2nd came back the 3rd and 4th, but there was nobody to counter-protest against because the protesters gave up and went home after one day when they saw the kind of backlash they were facing. And most people, I think, thought that was the end of it. But people who do this kind of thing more often realize that this was more likely the vibe of the beginning stages of something bigger. A lot of red flags went off when we found out they were protesting at a city council meeting, uh, yeah. planning to come back the following week. Oh, that's right. That was the other thing was the council meeting on the first where there was a lot of public comment logged. It seemed to us like this was going to escalate further, but other people um, tended to feel that it was going to be a quick, you know, one and done type thing with how fast the news cycle picks up a new issue. And I think it was probably about a week later on the council meeting on the 8th, because by that point we knew about the uh, planned turf action on the 15th. That's when it started to click for a lot of people that this was going to become a bigger thing. But I don't think anybody, including us, thought it was going to become an ongoing issue. When I uh, searched Port Townsend on Twitter and saw trending hashtags on a wall of anti-trans rhetoric, a lot of red flags went off. Since the city council public comments, the YMCA had started receiving threatening phone calls and Jammin had been returning to the facility nearly daily with some friends to protest, approaching everybody coming in and out of the pool and talking about how men are allowed in the locker room and bearing signs that misgendered the employee. Julie's group had said they were going to be picketing every day at the pool that week. Um, that they showed up, and there were about 100 counter... Uh, Counter-protesters isn't even really the right word. Um, people that were... There was sort of like a little pride parade there. And um, uh, Olympic Pride had a kind of a booth table set up and were handing out pride flags. And uh, the social justice group from the QUF had a, um, you know, standing on the side of Love Banner. And there were kids blowing bubbles. And, and it was just, it was much more of a just kind of lot of people here. 
as these initial picket-style protests were happening in front of the Y, the head of the Jefferson County Transgender Support Group called some friends and assembled this sort of counter-protest to voice their support for the trans employee and the YMCA, which resulted in this gay-ass trans rights party massively overshadowing Julie Jemin and her friend's little protest. As she was getting outnumbered in person, Julie took to alternative tactics by getting in touch with media outlets that'll give her a soapbox, resulting in a new wave of harassment targeted at the Y. There were about 100 people, and it was I think it was Julie and one or two other people. And people had some conversations with Julie, and it sort of seemed like that was going to be the end of it. And the next day, the pool was closed, and about 50 trans right supporters showed up and nobody showed up to pick it. And the pool was closed because pool employees were receiving death threats and just so much harassment. They basically couldn't use their phones because the phone lines were jammed and voicemails were filling up in 15 minutes, things like that. Um, so, and then the pool ended up staying closed, I think from the third, which was a Wednesday, all the way through that week and the, and the following week. And it was just kind of a safety issue of not wanting to have children present for day camps and patrons there if they were going to be harassed. Right after, I think probably on Monday the 1st um, of August, Julie reached out to, there's a local sort of far-right blog site called the Port Townsend Free Press that isn't really a newspaper or a news source at all. It's, it's kind of this, this one guy, Jim, James Garantino's blog. And she reached out to that, and he did an article. That first Port Townsend Free Press quote-unquote article came out August 2nd and served as a mouthpiece for Julie's inflammatory version of events, coupled with some conservative transphobia. More reputable news outlets and local press didn't really cover the story until it had already turned into a vital topic on the right. Which means there was over a week where the only documented write-up of the incident was the Port Townsend Free Press blog post. Two days after that piece was published, Andy Knows, the post-millennial, posted an article largely pulling directly from the Port Townsend Free Press write-up. And that was just the start. The next day, August 5th, Ben Shapiro's The Daily Wire did an article about Julie Jemond and the danger of men watching little girls undress in the locker room. Later that night, the story was on Laura Ingram's Fox News show, citing reporting from the Post Millennial, which of course cited their reporting from the Port Townsend Free Press. And across the country in Washington state, we found perhaps the most maddening story of the week, an 80-year-old grandmother was banned there from her YMCA after demanding that a biological male leave the woman's locker room where little girls were undressing. They then went to play clips of Julie's public comment at the city council meeting, amplifying Julie's ever-changing altered version of events now on the national stage. I think the, the mainstream actual, you know, real local newspapers didn't pick it up until the, the 7th or the 10th, respectively, for the Peninsula Daily News and the Leader. And that gap, when they amplified it out to the larger right-wing press, this got picked up by Breitbart, it got picked up by the Daily Mail, 
they kept quoting that original Port Townsend Free Press article, which was very inaccurate about it, in terms of what it described as having happened. And I mean, it was both outright wrong and it also left a bunch of things out, like that the, the transgender person was a YMCA employee, for instance, or that they were in the locker room because they were supervising children. Um, and uh, I think it, where it really hit a crescendo on... Thursday, the 19th, no, earlier, whatever, not Thursday this past week, but the previous Thursday, um, it was on Tucker Carlson. And that's where I really saw the email volume explode for people from outside the area, where it was like, you know, you're getting 30 emails in five minutes. And they're from, you know, they're from Texas, they're from Tennessee, they're from New Jersey, they're from Australia, they're from the UK, et cetera, that when it got picked up by Fox News, the reach really got broad. The first time the story was covered on Tucker Carlson Tonight took place on August 11th in an episode guest hosted by Brian Clemide. YMCA has changed a lot over the years. Now women and young girls at the Y are finding themselves in locker rooms and showers with men who identify as women, but they still have all their genitalia with them. And if you complain to the YMCA about their genitalia and what they're dressed like, you might get yourself banned. It's what exactly happened to an 80-year-old woman in Washington state. Here to explain, but not actually make excuses for, but explain is our West Coast correspondent, Seattle-based radio host, Jason Rance. Jason, set the scene. Yeah, so, I mean, here's a scene. Democrats used to stand up for women, but now they can't even define one. And as a result, you have 80-year-old Julie Jamon, who said she was banned from a pool and locker room facility that was managed by the Olympic Peninsula YMCA out in Port Townsend, Washington. Now, she says she was headed into the locker room to shower, and she saw something pretty alarming. She explained what happened at this council meeting. Then a clip from the public comments, please, and I will not subject you to that again, but here is a little bit more of that clip. So a number of residents showed up to support her at this council meeting, but the mayor, his name is David Faber, he was not pleased accusing them of transphobia. Townsend is a welcoming community, and hate and discrimination has no place in this community. Think pedophiles are included in that? I listen to you quietly. I'd like you to listen to me quietly now. Absolutely. Given the rise in harassment and bigotry that trans persons have experienced recently, it's essential that we all speak up, that cisgendered people like me speak up in support of our trans uh, community. Now, Jamon says the staff accused her of being discriminatory. The YMCA put out a statement basically saying we're not going to tolerate the bias, discrimination or hatred. And of course, in Washington state, the law allows anyone to use a locker room, changing room or bathroom that aligns with their gender identity. So they're basically saying we're doing what we have to do, except, of course, protect women who don't want to see this. Unbelievable. Uh, That guy should be ashamed of himself behind the mask. In the immediate aftermath of this, did you see it ballooning to this scale or did you think this was just like a one-and-done traumatic incident? Absolutely not. Um, I, I really just thought, you know, oh, my, my day's come. I finally had the bad bathroom experience. And, and I know a lot of people do have that bad experience. Um, nobody, nobody is ready for it to be, you know, to have this much attention called to just such a small thing. Um, no, because I, I wasn't ready a- for it to be like this. 
because yeah, it's escalated to the point where you're like on international news for these like right wing grifters who are trying to basically get trans people killed. Um, yeah, and you're. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's really it's really upsetting to have my face and and name you know sort of be pushed out like that, and it it's crazy how that feeling the the sinking feeling when i saw my my name and face uh i don't even think it was my face at the time when i saw my name appear on that local pt free press article and, and you know at the time it was a still pretty big impact and then to have that just keep happening and it, it got it gets like kind of depressingly numbing yeah to just have it keep intensifying I mean, yeah, I've been on hormones for almost a year now, and I've avoided that for kind of reasons like this, that it sucks, because I just feel like I, I feel like this is a very common experience with trans people who are, like, starting out, like, you just can't really go anywhere, because you look too weird to go in the men's room, <laughs> and you're not quite, like, you don't feel comfortable in the women's room because of stuff like this, and, you know, if you're not binary, that's just a whole other issue of, like, where the fuck do I go? <laughs> like, there's there's, there's a, not a lot of options sometimes. But then to have something that's already very stressful be turned into, like, a fucking, like, Daily Wire, New York Post, Infowars shit is, like, yeah. like, what? Like, ha- like, it's, I mean, like, well, Tucker Carlson, like, all of it. It's really... It's disappointing that there's this idea that I, you know, am am actively trying to violate people's space, and and it's really frustrating because of how uncomfortable I feel putting myself in that position, being in that room, um, and I don't want to have something like this happen, and and I don't, you know, I don't abuse that space because I'm not some guy trying to prey on people i'm i'm just trying to use the bathroom and and get changed and 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 like do your job talk about like oh you know walking in penis hanging out and and all of these things but i don't change in in the public space i go into a changing room and you know i i understand you know that confusion and i try to subtract myself from the space as much as possible and make it you know more comfortable when when I'm in a position like that where I'm trying to um you know sort of entertain a kid who's not happy to be a bathroom buddy and and I'm kind of put in that position where I have to talk um it's super vulnerable and and I just remember feeling small and and I just shrunk when she talked to me like that and I, I don't even, the space just got so small. Piggybacking off the groomer and growing anti-trans attacks we've seen this year, a large swath of right-wing influencers and media personalities jumped on this story to drive outrage and push their rhetoric. Here's a brief clip from Newsmax. They're more than willing to just ignore possible pedophilia happening at the YMCA in the locker room? Well, it's from my point of view, it seems more like some sort of hypnotism. I know the word woke has been put to it, yeah. but I have to tell you that all public agencies I'm connected to 
uh, as a citizen of a very small town, they are all operating with this uh, gender identity, and you've got to wonder what is happening in those most private places that people, particularly women, need to have. You know, um, we've we've had you on we've had you on the show a couple times now, and and you seem very level headed. Yes, very very level headed indeed. Um, by now, the story has been headlined in an obviously very mischaracterized and transphobic fashion, but still headlined by the Post Millennial, the Daily Wire, Fox News, Daily Mail, Breitbart, Newsmax, Infowars, the New York Post, The Federalist, and the quote-unquote feminist news site Redux. As false retellings about what happened in the Olympic Peninsula YMCA went viral on the right, threatening emails and phone calls started pouring into the YMCA, prompting them to shut down the entire facility for over a week, leaving many local families without childcare services. Intense harassment and death threats were sent to city officials who voiced support of trans rights, and also to the pool manager. In my conversation with Libby Wenstrom from last week, she detailed some of the threats and the impact the harassment has had on the community. A lot more of the ire is now kind of directed at the city and the mayor and just at the pool director and less at employees. Um, the transgender employee who was, you know, attacked in the locker room by Julie Juman is actually no longer why. Um, and other people have left is another undisclosed location just out of concern of trying to get the kids as far away from this whole process as possible. And, and so that took a little bit of time and juggling to set up. And they were so short-staffed, they were actually calling for volunteers in order to try to keep the child care open this week just because um, they were already somewhat short-staffed and with people leaving it had just been even harder um the y has been open i think all week this week i think it was open monday tuesday today's wednesday um so it has been able to reopen they they've changed the schedule around it's now not open saturdays again um and shuffled in i think some staff are working seven days a week in order to try to keep it open um people are still getting threats um still getting i got a terrible email last night i haven't been getting death threats i've been getting things like um you know you're a disgusting fat pig bitch why don't you go back to the buffet um and you know things like that it hasn't for me been death threats um the pool director was receiving photographs of her children saying they're next and um some pretty explicit threatening messages like I'm coming for you I know where you are um and Mayor Faber has been getting similar things he got one where somebody was threatening to come to his home and rape his wife um so it these have been pretty horrifying messages for the most part most of the email has and the voicemails have been coming from out of the area you know they're not they're not local um, so it's a little hard to gauge whether these are serious threats, but you, at some level you feel like you have to take it somewhat seriously. Um, and that I think has been pretty disruptive both for the Y employees and for the city. As Julie's retelling of the story was going viral across right wing and turf media, resulting in the pool having to temporarily shut down, 
a so-called press conference was scheduled outside of another city council meeting for August 15th by Julie and her allies. There's a local, um, she bills herself as a sort of radical feminist um, named Amy Souza, who has a um, uh, sort of anti-trans blog site. And um, she has really taken this and run with it. Sorry, I, got, I plugged in, but not well. She's really taken this and run with it and has, I think, has been really this kind of driving force between, behind a lot of this amplification with onto far-right media. Um, and Amy Souza held a, what she billed as a press conference on the August 15th, the night of the most recent um, city council meeting, and showed up with a group of, I don't know, probably 25 or 30 supporters. And there were estimates are between 350 and 400 um, trans rights folks from town. I mean, they, they were local who had just showed up and, and most of them were waiting in line to go into the council meeting and, you know, flying flags and, and raising banners and stuff. Um, but there was some heated shouting and one person got arrested for shoving there weren't any char charges filed. I did confirm that with um, uh, the sheriff's office um, that uh, with the courts that that no, no charges got filed out of that, which is contrary to the story they've been putting out that like there were assault charges filed. That's not true. I believe uh, there were about uh, 300 people that came out to confront uh, less than 20 um, people coming to try and bring hate into our community. and. Uh, it feels like that really inspired a lot of the different networks uh, to get connected. Um, our personal little network's are incredibly white. Um, most of us are, are trans of some regard. Um, and uh, we were reached out to by a local BIPOC community that uh, we, we've had some crossover with, but not a lot. But since this happened, um, just the interconnectivity with, with that group has just exploded. After the press conference protest, footage of the event went viral, spawning another new wave of right-wing media outrage. Clips from the quote-unquote feminist Redux Magazine Twitter account show Julie trying to give a speech while being drowned out by chance in support of trans people, and at one point, someone running behind Julie to rip down a suffragette flag put up by one of the TERFs. And a side note, in some much less viral footage, uh, we can see TERFs trying to rip pride flags out of the hands of people who are counter-protesting, so eh. Conservative coverage of the protest painted a pearl-clutching picture of scary trans people assaulting women. A few days after the press conference, Julie Jamin herself made an appearance on Tucker Carlson Tonight. Julie Juman is one of them. She's 80 years old. She's now been banned from stepping inside a YMCA. Why? Well, because she dared to object when a male employee was assigned to watch little girls remove their bathing suits in the bathroom in a women's locker room. So this week, a few dozen people joined Juman to protest the YMCA. Some of the protesters, including her, were assaulted by lunatics, men dressed as women. Here's some of the footage from that on Monday. You may have read some version of my personal experience. A naked old lady in the women's shower room and what I saw that day. Women's rights are human rights. Women's rights are human 
the hand. Say something to the woman. Screaming at her. Julie Jermon is the woman, the brave woman you just saw in that video. She joins us tonight. Julie, thanks so much. We are grateful that you are joining us. Why, at this stage in your life, are you taking it upon yourself to, to speak up against this in the face of what we just saw? I was in the shower and I saw that man in that women's suit and I saw him watching little girls. You can't not act when you see that going on. You must do right. something. So I and and bless you for doing that. That's exactly right. Your your moral sense is just is clear. I, I I have no idea what your background is, but you have a very clear sense of right and wrong, and I wish more people had it. So you tried to explain that in the video we just played, and rather than listen to you, people screamed at you and then appeared to come at you. Have you noticed there's no conversation about this? There was, it was a mob of hundreds of people that came streaming into this permitted uh, gathering and they kettled us. I think that's what you'd call it. They pushed, shoved, they knocked women to the ground. These are the men and the supporters of men that I, apparently the YMCA and the city want to allow into the women's uh, dressing and shower area. I object. And you at the age of 80, were banned by the YMCA. It's hard even to believe this is real because you were taking a shower and there was a man in there and they banned you, not him. What can you tell us if that's true, A, and B, what YMCA is this? Yes, that's correct. I, I told that guy to get out of the shower and then a staff member came around the corner and I said to her, get him out of here. And she said, that's discrimination. You're out of here for life and I'm calling the cops. Can you tell us what YMCA, where did this happen? This happens in Port Townsend, that's on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. It's just, it's, I, I hope they are punished for the way that they treated you. And I appreciate your bravery and well, your forthrightness. I, I do too. We did try and get the police to come help us. They were standing across the street. Whoops. And uh, they were told by a directive to stand down. They did not come to help us. I hope they rot. Julie Jamon, thank you for all you've done. I appreciate it. Good to see you tonight. Throughout all the media spectacle, I feel like the actual original victim of this harassment has kind of been forgotten, despite them being the current face of the transgender menace. In my conversation with Clementine, we talked about what it's like to be turned into this sort of outrage symbol. Like, I've, I, I watched the three hours of public testimony um, a few nights ago, which was, I was on, I was, I was on so much caffeine. Um, <laughs> it's the only way is to that, sit through is that. Is that the first, is that the meeting that happened right after the incident or the Monday meeting from the 15th? Uh, both. I did both in one both. night. Yeah. It was. That's it was, a lot of footage. It, yeah. Um, and one of the more shocking things was just how, 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 mis one, how mischaracterized the incident was. And two, just like how much blatant misgendering there was and like talking about you not as like an actual person but as almost this like evil archetype in people's minds like it's so 
dehumanizing in a really bad way um let alone all of like the like misgendering stuff like it's yeah. it was it was wild watching just person after person completely mindlessly create this villain in their own heads um and then just attached it onto an actual human being who's like you, like your privacy has actually been violated. Like your, <laughs> like like your like like private information, your uh, pictures, names is going all over these like b- like neo fascist news sites, and like if something's you know people are framing this as like you know safety and privacy and like if you want to look at what's actually going on, it's so different and there's such a disconnect between watching all of that public testimony and looking at all of you know the the right-wing press of this incident and yeah it's it's very depressive framing it's really clear and disappointing when you're the subject of it because i know what happened in that space and you know there were people to witness what happened and we worked uh to get our reports out quickly but it just didn't you know, it didn't matter because of how dedicated this woman was to getting her side or whatever. I mean, in reality, it it just feels like she was dedicated to hurting. Um, I don't know what her motivation was, but it, it's the blatantly false side of the story that really hurts because accusations that I was standing there watching I think they they go anywhere from like two to five kids is their number. Um, I was watching the Tucker Carlson and I think I saw that number five, watching five kids undress um, when that's just not what happened. I was standing there with one kid who was fully clothed chatting while we waited for another kid to come out of the bathroom. And it's just wrong. It's misinformation and it's not about, you know, it's not even about um, pushing an agenda. It's, it's about people's livelihood and it's really damaging to have my privacy violated like that, you know, um, straight up. That's what it is. Um, it almost feels like you're just like this sacrificial archetype <laughs> that and they're boogeyman. Yeah. It's like, they're not even a, uh, but they're not even like interested in you as a person, really. They're interested no. in you on this, 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 this like idea and pr- to project you onto this whole other idea, which is so fucked up because you're an actual person. <laughs> like, yeah, well, and and you can see in the comments and stuff on some of these that it's pretty. You know, I I won't try to dig into like uh, the the ugly, the ugly and the bad of Twitter, but. Like, I've seen people say that I'm, like, a fully bearded man or, like, I'll be paralleled as a lumberjack. And it's, like, or, I mean, and not that, you know, your appearances matter. It's it's about how you feel. But it's kind of, you know, interesting to see how I'm I'm painted in such a weird and twisted light. Despite going viral in the right-wing and turf news sphere, Local sentiment in the Port Townsend area has been widely in support of trans rights and not very pleased that their town has been upended for over a month due to one woman's personal prejudice and discomfort. 
I've lived in Port Townsend for 24 and a half years. And in talking to people over the last couple of weeks, I would say nearly universally, the local sentiment is, why is this such a big deal? Like, this basically somebody got startled in a locker room, made kind of a jerk of herself, and is now trying to blow this into some kind of international incident. And, you know, here's this little tiny town at the edge of the continent. And we're like, why? Why Why is this the most important thing? You know, why did, you know, a, dozens of families not have childcare for 10 days? Why did, um, you know, the YMCA employees have to not get paid? Why, why did, you know, the, the, the impact of this has been so outsized relative to the actual, what actually happened. The person who started the initial incident with the trans employee, it's it's kind of funny in a way that, yes, she's gotten out her message to the whole community, but it's spread as a result of the organizing against her and against the group of people that she's bringing into the area. And it's gotten to a point where just random community members that we don't have any direct connection to are recognizing her and knowing why she's a known person and are just kicking her out of their businesses on site. It's like the, the backlash against that incident is really spreading really well. And we're getting this really good organic network building throughout the community. Earlier in August, before the big press conference thing, various BIPOC and queer collectives and affinity groups started networking, and a solidarity meeting was set up to figure out how to take care of each other as the far right's spotlight on the town grows. Myself and one other person went, and maybe a couple others who I didn't know, but the two of us were the main ones who were more directly involved with the queer community side of responding to what was going on. And it was really great. Like they just were like, we want to support you. We want to, you know, help take care of you. What can we do? And then for the action on the 15th, when we were talking about, you know, like here's, here's the kind of response that we're wanting from the whole community but here's some of these background needs because none of them were experienced enough with protesting to feel comfortable going out on the front lines and doing stuff. They went about a quarter mile away and set up a community picnic. And I don't think people took nearly enough advantage of it because the planning happened so last minute, but they did a great job of setting up in solidarity, in solidarity and in support and we're really looking forward to working with them more. We spent the last uh, few years uh, running small group uh, basic medical classes um, and uh, workshops and really making connections like within our community and having this come about and having everyone come out to one place and see each other and going, oh, we know you and I know you. Um, and from different communities coming together, we've really been able to enable those folks to come together to start building more of a unified front. I want to reiterate that with all the media spectacle, it's important to not lose sight of the original target of all of this hate and transphobia. 
the physical and mental effect of such a massive wave of bigoted harassment and doxing can take a substantial toll. I had to stop going into work at a certain point because I couldn't do it. I I woke up in the morning and I looked in the mirror and and I just broke down because it was too much to keep going and to keep trying to bring that bright energy uh, to work. Um, and a lot of doubt uh, is that's what I've been experiencing is a lot of you see so many people trying to divulge your character in a negative way and it's, you know, it's toxic and it can kind of seep through and and make your life toxic. And that's why I just had to stop looking because it hurt too much and it's putting me in this limbo. I, I don't feel like I've gotten a break for a month. I feel like I've just been tired and like it's like I a purgatory rest i feel like i'm in purgatory <laughs> you know has there been any kind of like support on the community level that has been helpful yeah yeah um i've been i've been definitely grateful and um blessed to have the community response be really astounding and, and supportive yeah uh i've been given the opportunity to be so much more connected with my local queer community as well as my local community period um there were a lot of supportive voices uh that made it a little bit easier to ignore the darker side of this um and elephant in the room uh the gofundme i don't know how i would feel if there wasn't you know something uh rigid and like a rock to lean on like the gofundme to be able to have something hopeful to look forward to and think that I can, you know, be me and that I can afford being me. Uh, I don't know how I would navigate the storm without something like that in the distance. It's been overwhelming and I've just been waiting for it to end. and, And it looks like it's finally slowing down but um the support makes it easier and the support is a kind of attention that really helps right now because it's strikingly easy to feel bad uh to feel just dissociated when when your life is kind of thrust into a different lens in what felt like a day what kind of was just a day or a week. This month has felt like longer than my entire summer break. The situation in Port Townsend is not over yet. In a bit, we'll talk about the upcoming anti-trans rally on September 3rd. And there is this kind of absurd irony that's not uncommon when digging into these types of issues, that the types of talking points common among reactionaries and all the complaints around violations of privacy just end up actually being enacted by the people who push these moral panics. So things have just continued to kind of escalate and escalate. My understanding, and I wasn't there for this, is that yesterday, which was the 24th, um, Amy Souza, I'm not sure if Julie Jamon was there or not, because of course Julie Jamon's been banned from the pool, um, showed up at the pool 
with a film crew and was trying to push their way into the locker room when pa- patrons were there using a locker room, trying to film inside the locker room and got asked to leave. Um, so it's, it's still continuing to escalate. One of the things that I've been noticing a lot, and it's something that for those of us who are more involved, this is kind of a, you don't say moment. And it's the people who are coming in and making accusations and making attacks against the community are very much doing the exact thing that they're making accusations of. Uh, there was an issue the other day of the people who planned and hosted the uh, protest at the council meeting going into the Y with a camera crew and demanding to film the locker rooms while people were using them. Um, there's lots of accusations that have been thrown that we bust in people from Portland and in reality, the main aggressors who were there on the 15th in their group did come from Vancouver area. Or were flown in from Texas. Um, or were flown in from Texas, yeah. Like, this was 300 people who live within 20 minutes of Port Townsend showed up because they care. And they had to fly people from as far as Pennsylvania to host an hour-long press conference with 20 people. And so we're, we're seeing that a lot recurring. The person organizing this upcoming action is also lives in Vancouver area and is inviting people from all over to come up and start fights here and try to get video of confrontations going. And everybody up here wants to just be left alone and live in peace, but they also want to show up. And they're kind of getting an opportunity to show up in the most low effort way. It's, it's in your own town, you might as well show up. I remember a few weeks ago, there was this headline from a Federalist think piece that went a bit viral for being a a big yikes, (laughs) almost mirroring the fascist framing of blood libel. If you replace, quote, the transgenders with, quote, the Jews, you'll see what I mean. The headline reads, quote, the transgender movement is not just intolerant, it's barbaric and violent and it's coming for your children, unquote. Almost exclusively, its sources are Twitter accounts like Libs of TikTok and a few random TERFs. And this is what we mean when we talk about how things that seem like they should just be insignificant Twitter bullshit actually do affect the world off of social media. This is how entire conversations on the validity of people's existence get formed and directed now. The last section of the Federalist story is about the Boston Children's Hospital. And if you listened to yesterday's episode of It Could Happen Here, you can guess the kind of disinformation the article peddles. And many readers, many of whom are not on Twitter, will take whatever it says at face value. Same thing for libs of TikTok stuff being boosted on Fox News. The majority of the Federalist think piece, though, is about Port Townsend and everything stemming out of the YMCA incident. And the whole article is as terrifying and fascistic as its headline. I remember seeing the Federalist article headline and just being like, oh, here's another another piece doing the same thing. And I didn't realize it was about like uh, this specific incident until much later. And oh yeah, it's the kind of 
it kind of does play into the idea that like we know these things happen you just don't expect them to happen like right where you are until it's until it's until it's going on yeah i've spent years screaming at a wall telling people that this is coming and uh really hope that all of my preparation had been for nothing and it's happening in my hometown now and getting national media attention everything from you know ben shapiro to Infowars to interviews on tucker back during the trump presidency we were pretty much just uh gun nerds and uh had started a small little uh, uh gun club and we're inviting our friends and our, our local uh, queer community out to uh, to learn about that and it went really quickly from that to uh, people having more of an interest in the uh, medical stuff we were teaching, specifically uh, Stop the Bleed. And uh, so after the Trump presidency was over, um, a lot of people dropped off and just the majority of the people that stuck around happened to be trans. Um, but we continued offering uh, these classes. Uh, we were hosting ones out here about de-escalation, about Stop the Bleed. Uh, we're hosting uh, naloxone stuff. Um, I think with um, there being such limited options for direct actions in the area, a lot of people were kind of naturally tending towards how can we better support our friends who live in areas that are doing direct actions. And we started getting a lot more interest in those kinds of support roles, the medical training, the de-escalation, uh, even things like emergency preparedness and food security. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, because of that, we've just spent the last uh, few years running these just uh, small group, uh, like one to four people, um, basically workshops on all these different subjects. And I've built somewhat of a connection with the community and a bit of respect. So when this happened, we actually had that to draw on and we could really... Um, help enable people to organize themselves and create some form of unity. So it's not small groups of people coming in without a plan, but a uh, large group of people showing up all at once um, that we're not directly involved in any sort of leadership of. It's just naturally, organically happened. Um, but have really spent the last uh, few years just feeling like kooks screaming at a wall. Um, until this happened in our small town and completely unexpectedly. And now we're actually somewhat useful. Before we close out, we do need to talk about the upcoming anti-trans rally planned for the afternoon of Saturday, September 3rd at Pope Marine Park. Organizers are explicitly tied to the Proud Boys, and this rally is one of the most clear examples of how TERFs, self-described feminists, or people just looking out for biological women's rights are perfectly willing to ally with fascists if it means hurting trans and queer people. The rally is billed as, quote, a rally for decency, stand up against men in women's public pool locker rooms, and tell the city of Port Townsend to let Julie swim, unquote. Yeah, the guy who runs Common Sense Court Conservatives, a man named Robert, um, I always mess up his name, um, Zerfling, I think it is, Zerfing, Z-E-R-F-I-N-G, um, who's associated in some way with the Proud Boys and is uh, associated with Roger Stone. 
He runs this blog called Common Sense Conservative. He is organizing something that's being billed as, quote, rally for decency, unquote, um, to be here in Port Townsend on the Labor Day weekend Saturday, which is the third. And um, it's unclear whether this is going to be a large event or a small one. They have not, as of yesterday, pulled a permit for that. Um, and there's some questions about, you know, if you're planning a large event, what what's that going to unfold like? Uh, Port Townsend's a tourist community, and at this time of year, we've got a lot of people in town over Labor Day weekend. Um, so a, a large Proud Boy rally is, is kind of, you know, it, it doesn't feel very comfortable. Is this kind of the first kind of big incident where you've had these types of like, you know, more kind of experienced uh activists on like the anti-trans side or on you know affiliated with proud boys or whatever kind of come in and try to make this problem inside the town we've had little bits and pieces of stuff um the proud boys or something kind of connected had a kind of truck drive-through parade rally in 2020 sort of just prior to the election um that kind of drove through town and you know with a bunch of big trucks and I think some people were open carrying and it was, it was mostly a bunch of noise. Um, but it hasn't, this is a very liberal community. Um, and it hasn't really hit us. This is also just for context. This is a town of 10,000 people and, and it's the biggest town for, you know, 50 miles in any direction. So it's not, you know, it isn't like 10,000 people. That's a suburb. This, this is the big town. This is the County seat. Um, so it's, We've been kind of insulated from a lot of things. You know, we had, you know, we definitely had some Black Lives Matter protests. We definitely had, you know, we we had a big women's march in 2017 and 2018. But we haven't seen the kind of explosive clashing protests that, you know, Seattle or Portland have. The far right is planning to mobilize people from around the Pacific Northwest, pulling from folks in Oregon and Idaho, and are expecting anywhere between 50 to 100 people to show up on the anti-trans side, especially people from Proud Boy and 3%er affiliated networks. One of the leaders of the Washington State 3%er militia, Eric Rode, has stated that he will be present and is encouraging his followers to join him, saying on Telegram, quote, I don't care if five of you show up or 50 of you show up. I will always march against men staring at girls as young as 11 pulling off their swim trunks. It would be pretty cool if people could cancel their plans and show up to stand against child molesters. God said if you even look back, I'll turn you into a pillar of salt. I wouldn't have looked back, but I never fail to answer the call to something so simple as don't stare at little girls when they take off their clothes, unquote. He then goes on to do some unhinged rambling about federal observation and his commitment to God and country, but he ends that post by saying, quote, When I get threatened by Antifa, I'll match to Antifa, unquote, which I don't even know what that means. The grammar on that is very confusing. Another Telegram post from a 3%er account reads, quote, Calling all patriots, all proud boys, all three percenters, all lone wolves. We roll out to Port Townsend on September 3rd. Hope to see you there. We got proud boys and threepers rolling in from all over, unquote. 
The Three Percenter crew is also planning a pre and post rally barbecue party on Friday and Saturday night at Whidbey Island, which sounds like an awful time. That sounds like a horrible party. Our major concerns going forward is if protesters keep coming out here, um, that the right wing will get more footage that they can spin, um, bringing more attention on this, bringing more harm to the trans community across the country, um, that the right wing will attack someone locally around here, um, or that all of this spun footage will inspire someone from outside of the area or someone just sitting in the woods who will come and cause serious harm to a large group of our uh, our local trans community. Um, and our intent is to uh, to be there to have some sort of uh, response, be it medical or otherwise. I'm trying to think of how to say this. Um, I, I've lived here on and off um, most of my life and had started um, working towards transitioning, but due to the national political situation, specifically uh, when the former president uh, temporarily got rid of trans protections and medical, um, canceled all that, changed my medical records back, and have been presenting as a cis white dude since then, specifically because of the amount of privilege that gives me. And having a trans partner who is working on their transition uh, in this town while this is happening is hitting home to a level that I was completely unprepared for. And the emotional impact that all of this has been having on me and the fact that it's not just here, but that this is getting national attention is something I'm still trying to wrap my head around. And I'm just really thankful for all of the networks that we've built and all of the the community, the local community, the broader Washington community, all the people who have just shown so much support for us. And it makes me feel like there is there is a future where we can just be left in peace. And that is the story of what's been happening in Port Townsend over the course of the past month and what could happen in the next few days. I'm going to close this episode with Clementine discussing the details of her GoFundMe. The GoFundMe is sort of a general transition fund for me. I originally made it specifically for two surgeries. I lowballed the amount greatly because I felt like if I asked for too much, I wouldn't get anything. And and I still got nothing for a long time. At some point when the articles were coming out, uh, one of the nationals used, uh, one of the national articles used my GoFundMe as a source um, to find out more about me. But that got my GoFundMe out there. Um, and a lot of different people started picking up on it and spreading it. I actually didn't do much at all to to help that. I it was never something on my mind. The GoFundMe it it just happened, and I looked at it one day and I thought, that's strange. I have more donations than last time I checked, and it was pretty empowering to see that, or or more hopeful. 
Um, but now, now, so I talked about uh, the GoFundMe was originally for two specific surgeries, and I lowballed the amount. Um, I later revised. Uh, actually, it took me a couple times and a lot of consideration because I didn't want to feel like I was cheating the people that were being gracious to me, which I'm not trying to be. But yeah, uh, finding out that things cost more than I thought, but you know, it's way better than it was before. And to find it, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's the first thing that comes up when you look up my name now, which is better than Fox News's video or or a Daily Wire article or whatever the big thing that would pop up otherwise is. But um, yeah, I, it's called Clementine's Transition Fund. It's on GoFundMe. You can find the transition GoFundMe at gofundme.com slash SRS for Clem. And that link will be in the description, or you can just search Clementine's Transition Fund on your search engine of choice. See you on the other side. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.